We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MBW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome into another edition of Hand Raised Guys, presented by Comer Heating and Air, Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. On tonight's show, we're joined by Jackson attorney Ryan Burns, who may very well have solved the 50-year-old question of who was D.B. Cooper. We'll get to Ryan in a minute, but first I want to tell you about Comer Heating and Air and Southern Air Conditioning and Heating. Different names, same great products, same great services, same great people. If you live in Oxford, Tupelo, Batesville, or that area, call Comer 662-801-1777. If you live in Hernando, Memphis, or the surrounding area, call Southern 662-429-4429. This will be the Friday Oxford Exxon podcast, the Oxford Exxon located on Highway 6 West in Oxford. You can try to win box tickets to the series finale next weekend versus Arkansas. Simply tweet at Oxford Exxon and use the hashtag Rebel Ready. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi. Call the number 662-257-1900. Ask for our buddy Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. It's right to the bottom line. There's no hassle. There's no haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is completely up to you. You can shop that quote around, or you can do what I've done, what I recommend that you do, and that is hop into a Clark Ford today. You will love the product. You'll absolutely love the service. Corey and the people at Clark Ford, they want to be your car guy. They want to be your truck guy. If you want to find out what that means, make the call, 662-257-1900. Ryan Burns and all other guests join on the MyPerfectFranchise.net hotline. If you're a displaced corporate executive or you're wanting to put your career in your own hands, or maybe you're an experienced entrepreneur just looking to diversify, Andy Ludicky can help. He owns multiple franchises and businesses and uses his expertise to help others find their American dream through a very thorough and free consultation process. So call Andy, put your life and your career in your own hands. It's 100% free. You've got nothing to lose. Find your perfect franchise at MyPerfectFranchise.net or contact Andy anytime at Andy at MyPerfectFranchise.net or 404-973-9901. Here's our conversation with D.B. Cooper expert, Ryan Burns. Ryan Burns now joining us on the My Perfect Franchise hotline. Ryan, we've been wanting to do this for a long time since you... uh 
educated so many people on the message board with uh, the DB Cooper saga, your chase of it to figure out who um, who DB Cooper was. You think you have made a lot of inroads in that, so I'm excited to hear about that. Obviously, um, November 24th, 1971, Northwest Orient Flight 305, and the only... I guess hijack where the person got away with it. We don't know who it is, Ryan. Appreciate the time today. I guess I want to start here. I'm going to have you set up sort of what happened that day. I got some questions about that. Um, First, where, looked- where were you on that day in November of, yeah. of 1971? I mean, you kind of have a D.B. <laughs> Cooper look to you. I um, mean, well, are, are you I innocent? Guess, yes, my father uh, was innocent as well. He he had just got back from the military in 71. So, okay, all right. So there was military background. See, you're already giving yourself up. There's a chance right there. Well, uh, so yeah. So basically, I guess the setup that has to start with any D.B. Cooper story is that the era. I mean, we're talking, um, I believe that between 1968 and 1972, there were 159 American skyjackings. 159 in a four-year period, which sounds so completely insane uh because our our understanding of hijackers or especially recently is basically 9-11 related and that's pretty much it um before then you know there was some stuff in the 80s with palestinians and all that kind of stuff but um this was the golden era of, of skyjacking and basically what occurred was it was almost exclusively people wanting to go to the land of milk and honey that was cuba at least that's what, the, what that's what people thought it was at the time. So almost all skyjackings were flights to Cuba. It was people who wanted to go to Cuba, and that's what. Uh, and essentially, uh, it became kind of a carnival atmosphere because the airlines they did a basically a cost benefit and said, "Look, it, it's better to give in to the to hijackers' demands than to risk." losing passengers, risk losing a million-dollar aircraft. Um, big deal. They want to fly to Cuba. Sure, we'll let them do this. And this was a thing that just became vogue to do, and it happened so frequently. The FBI was pissed about it, but we have to remember the FBI is government and airlines were private. And so the airlines could tell the FBI, you know, you leave us alone on this. We're going to do this our own way. We don't want any FBI involvement. And the FBI was so... Uh, the, well, the government really wanted to stop. They really wanted to stop this. The airlines wanted it too. But the problem with stopping hijackings is that it costs money to prevent these things. And again, you know, is it worth it? So uh, my favorite story is about this era is that they, the government actually considered designing a completely fake replica, complete full-scale replica of the, Q, of the uh, Havana airport somewhere like south of Miami. So they could land there and, you know, these hijackers could, could, could come off the plane and just walk into the arms of FBI agents um, who, who are in this fake airport. And now they, they, they never got that far, but it was actually a bill that was put into the Congress, I think. I mean, they got that far on it. Um, but, yeah, so this was the era of hijackings. And essentially, you got what you wanted. If you got on a plane, you could, it didn't matter what kind of weapon you had. didn't matter what was going on. Uh, it was, you know, a trip. And in fact, you know, people were, weren't scared when they got hijacked. Uh, it, if you read the articles from people back then, when they were hijacked, they were, hey, we got a 
we got to go to Cuba. We got cigars and we got rum and we'd go on the beach. And basically because Castro was doing PR, he would, Hey, you know, he, you know, he would let the Americans get off the plane and stretch their legs and go to the beach. And here's, you know, now of course these cigars and things, they would be confiscated before they landed. So the pilots would say, Hey, you, you know, you back there, y'all smoke your cigars before we land at you know, JFK airport or whatever. Um, so that's, that's, that's how they used to do it. Uh, but it was pretty interesting that they used to do it that way. But anyway, so that's the era. And of course, you also have to remember that airline security literally did not exist. There was no such thing. There were no metal detectors. There were no, you didn't have to show an ID to, to buy an airplane ticket. In fact, um, some of the airlines would allow you to board the aircraft and buy your ticket on the plane as you're sitting there. Um, so it was, it was a different world altogether. It's hard for us to even comprehend that, um, that no ID, no metal detectors. Um, this particular airline, Northwest Orient, they were known for providing uh, champagne and steaks uh, for all flights, even flights like the Cooper flight, which was only a 30 minute flight from Portland to Seattle, complimentary champagne um, and meals were served. So even on a 30 minute flight, it was just kind of, it's, a, it's hard to understand the era. And it's also the era of the, we call them you know, the sexy stewardesses, you know, with the go-go boots and all that sort of stuff that we see in the old, old films. I mean, airlines, it's just a different world. So the world that Cooper walked into was a world where he knew he could get what he wanted just by asking for it. Now, the FBI was always going to try to get in, involved a little bit, and the air, it was the airline's duty to say, no, back off. So November 24th was the day before Thanksgiving. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that these days, travel around Thanksgiving is um, one of the busiest days of the year, but back then it was not at all because people just didn't travel. Basically, if you traveled back then, it was for work. Um, people didn't travel as far to see. I mean, you know, your family unit was a lot smaller back then, a lot closer to your area where you're from. So they weren't people weren't flying all across, all across the place. So it was mainly businessmen, and businessmen had already come home a lot of them before Thanksgiving. So most of the passengers on this flight, there were only um, I should know the exact count. I believe there were 35 passengers, not including DB Cooper, on a 727, which holds I don't know 120. So it was very limited passengers on the aircraft. So um, basically, it was just a regular flight. That aircraft had gone all the way from D.C. that morning. That crew had gone from D.C. to Minneapolis, then to uh, Spokane, Washington, to Montana. They had gone all over the place. And uh, they had landed in Portland, and they were just getting their passengers on board. And it was going to be a, a little milk run, a 30-minute flight. Uh, not, not a big deal, up and down, essentially. And... Uh, the second to last passenger to board the plane was a middle-aged man with black hair, uh, kind of hair like mine a little bit, kind of thinning hair, um, about six feet tall. He walked on. He, he had bought his ticket in the terminal. Um, he walked on and sat down. And the first thing he did, because he was the, the he was sat in the rearmost seat, in the, he sat in the aisle seat of the, uh, the far back right seat. Uh, he ordered a, because uh, remember, you, you ordered a drink even before takeoff back then. So he ordered a bourbon and seven up, um, which is a, I, I always thought maybe it was a 
seven and seven or something um because seven up was used but there was a bourbon in seven up which i've never had that chase have you ever had a bourbon oh, in seven up no i can't say i have neil I had a seagram's in seven but i don't know that i've ever had a i, I don't probably bourbon. Back in the, i've had bourbon and sprite but maybe not seven up so i guess I mean, that's close I'm, enough Sprite. yeah yeah i mean i've probably put seven up or sprite into Jack Daniels or Jim Beam or something back in the day. That's probably happened so before. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop you real quick. And I mean, obviously, most people listening to this have the general idea of what happened before you take yeah. me through the rest of the day. But do we know the answer to this? Why? Obviously, as you said, November 24th was not a huge travel day. Maybe that played into it. But beyond that, why this flight and why a flight that only was 30 minutes, I think 37 officially minutes long? Because you don't have a lot of time to not get it executed in my like in yeah. that way right i mean is there some reasons mm -hmm. why it was this exact flight because it it's portland to, be. to, portland to seattle correct yes, yes correct. 30 minutes so yeah. um now you know tina the stewardess who sat with him for five hours actually asked him you know why did you pick this flight and he said it suited my time and purpose um it suited my goal so um I think that I think that knowing that the so aircraft will always ref, whenever an aircraft land they refuel to the max just because you never know what's going to happen. Um, you may have to circle for three hours, which is what they ended up doing. Um, so I, I think I guess he knew that he would have a, a full tank of gas in this plane. Um, some have theorized that he knew that, and it is true. It, it turned out to be true that a lot of the good FBI agents were off because it was the day before Thanksgiving. So they weren't there. Um, a lot of the, it was kind of the backup crew, cops and FBI. So, and, and that's kind of, like I said, that's how it turned out to be. Um, so, and he knew that, you know, I don't know. Now, some people have speculated that, that, that he was a guy who had a job that, 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 that he needed to do it on a kind of a, a longer weekend, I guess, or, or a holiday weekend so he could be back at work. Um, the next and, Monday, and from a and from a topography standpoint, this area suited him from a isolation, from a uh, where he parachutes, that kind of thing, right? Well, not, sort of. Um, that we'll, we'll get into that, but it, okay. it's kind of a misnomer that he jumped in an area that was really wild and wilderness. Um, TV shows, unsolved mysteries, in search of all these type of shows, they always show like. A, 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 basically a tundra of trees, you know, like a big forest area. But where he actually jumped, where we think now he jumped, was only about five miles north of Vancouver, Washington, which is a Vancouver, Washington. I mean, basically, the county, that, just to give people an idea, the county that he jumped into, where we think he jumped into now, um, at the time had a population of 200,000 people. So not isolated at all. Um, okay. I mean, again, where he jumped was five miles north of Vancouver, Washington, which puts him about 10 miles north of Portland, Oregon, which is a major metropolitan city. So he's not jumping into the Yukon, uh, which is what TV shows like to, uh, I guess, dramatize this as being he's jumping. But he was just as likely to land on top of somebody's car on the interstate as he was or land on somebody's house as he was as he was to be impaled on a tree. Okay. So it wasn't so I, I, the terrain. I, I I guess that I mean there's it, it it's hard to say why he chose this flight, um, but the other 
I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question because, again, we don't have him to talk to. Um, you know, all, all we have are, uh, are other people who did the same thing afterwards and why they did what they did. And basically, they did what they did because they didn't want to be – we know he wasn't from Portland because none of the people who copied Cooper – there were 16 people. I'm actually writing a book currently on the 16 people who tried to copycat Cooper. About the, the, but, but it's, about the men who, the, it's about the men who tried and failed to be D.B. Cooper. There were 16 of them it, within that next year who, who tried to get money and jump out. And five of them actually did manage to jump out of the plane. Um, one of them jumped out, and, out into the snowy – into the snow banks of Colorado in January – um, landed in snow, broke his ankle. One guy jumped out over Honduras. He hijacked a plane in Philadelphia and jumped out over Honduras. And uh, one of my good friends actually did this. I'm actually good friends with a guy named Martin McNally who uh, had never put on a parachute before in his life. And he hijacked a plane and got $500,000 and jumped out over Indiana. And uh, it took him, it took him about, about a week to catch him. And he actually got away with it, but he, he told a friend about it. And that friend turned him in. So he went to prison for four, he went to prison for um, for forty years and he uh he's out now, um but uh so you became yeah. friends with him while he was uh, in incarcerated no no since he got out uh, okay. I made contact with him he's just living by himself up in Michigan hanging out he's a he's a he's a fun guy he actually ran for president in nineteen eighty from prison um and and actually he's the reason why so he found a loophole so back then this is a sidebar on all our conversation but it's fun. So back in back then, federal prisoners did not have to well, yeah, did not pay for postage. Seven up, it would be great. Go ahead. Yes. So back then, uh, in, back in the eighties and seventies, uh, federal prisoners did not pay for postage. So Mac, his name is Martin McNally. We call him Mac. So Mac was like, you know what? If we don't pay for postage, I'm going to run for president, and I'm going to send out like ten thousand letters asking for uh, for endorsements and for money contributions. And people actually send him contributions. To his prison and the warden scooped it all up and confiscated it and sent it all back. But he caused such a uproar that uh, the, the, the solicitor general for the United States went to the Supreme Court and said, hey, we got to stop this. People are going to exploit this, you know, prisoners not paying for postage. So he's the reason why prisoners have to pay for postage now. Um, so he's a interesting cat. He was also involved in three subsequent hijackings to try to get out of prison uh, he, he he had someone try to hijack a helicopter and landed in the prison yard. Uh, it's a it's a whole thing. So he's actually an expert on skyjacking. Yeah, who who this really? Yeah, actually, and he was convicted of two hijackings to try to escape. And he actually acted as his own lawyer after his conviction and got those overturned with the U.S. Supreme Court. He wrote a two hundred page brief by himself, bound it with shoestring, and had two of his convictions overturned for aircraft piracy uh, by himself. Um, so he, so today he goes and gives lectures to schools and things on being a prison lawyer, I guess. But anyway, so there were 16 people who tried to do this afterwards and none of them did it where they were from. Obviously they, uh, McNally was from, from, was from Detroit and he hijacked a plane out of St. Louis because he didn't want anybody to see him and know him. Uh, interestingly enough, his first attempt to hijack a plane in St. Louis, uh, he was buying a ticket. And he heard, hey, Mac, Mac. He said, oh, my God. It was a guy he had served in the Navy with. He was like, hey, Martin, how you doing? So he was like, oh, my God. So he had to come back like a month later when the moon was right you know, to do it again because he was spotted in the airport. But anyway, so Cooper, we don't know why he chose that flight. Um, you know, it's interesting. He, he uh, I don't know. But so he sits down 
and uh, he orders himself a bourbon and seven. And now he was already inconveniencing the stewardesses from from the, from the jump because um, back then each drink was only a dollar. Okay, you, you ordered a specialty drink, cocktail, whatever. Um, all he had on him for whatever reason, all he all he had on him was a twenty dollar bill. Um, for whatever reason, he had no smaller bills, so he gave the stewardess a twenty. And uh, she goes, "Well, sir, I don't have change yet. I have to serve the rest of the cabin. Can I come back and give you change?" He goes, "Yeah, that's fine." Um, and he actually ended up spilling this drink. Interestingly enough, we don't have, we don't know how much of the drink he drank because he spilt it. Uh, one of the there was a college student who was sitting across from Cooper, who that was when that was when he first recognized this guy because he spilled his drink and said, well, "What a, what a klutz." Looked over and um, so anyway, so she came back and gave him his change. And as they're taking off, he hands her a note and she assumes that, hey, this is the era of the sexy stews. She assumes that he's hitting on her, that it's a proposition note or whatever, because I guess she got these a lot, according to her, because um, they were all beautiful girls back then. They could not be married. Um, they had to have their figures, you know. Like, I mean, literally they had, you know, tape measures and things for their busts. And it was very like, you know, you just wouldn't see that now. But so uh, she takes his note and smiles at him and sits down and she sits in the little, little jump seat. Um, remember, he's in the back row and, she sit, and she's behind him in a little jump seat for takeoff. And he turns around and, and stares at her and says, Miss, you need to read that note. And uh, when she opened it up, it said, Miss, I have a bomb in my briefcase. Please sit. Come, please come sit next to me. So she goes and sits down, and uh, he opens the briefcase, and she looks inside, and what looks to her like dynamite. Now she doesn't handle it very well. She tries to speak and can't speak to him. Uh, another stewardess sees something happening, looks back and sees her looking at this, sitting next to a passenger, which is weird as they're taking off to begin with, and wonders what she's doing, and goes back there, and this stewardess takes over for this girl who's frazzled. This girl's frazzled. And uh, one of the key components of Cooper's hijacking was he didn't want the passengers to know. I think that's what would surprise a lot of people to find out is that the passengers did not know they had been hijacked until they were off the plane, um, which is shocking. Um, that is real efficiency for on his part um, to, to, to think about that. Um, so the stewardess that he gave the note to, her name, her name was Florence. She's in a bit of a panic and he sends her to the cockpit. And the pilots do not let her out of the cockpit for the next three hours because she's obviously was crying and that would have alerted the passengers. So the pilots did not let her out of the cockpit. So a 21-year-old stewardess named, named Tina Mucklow uh, assumed the position uh, with him and sat there and uh, was his go-between. And he, he, would, he would write her notes and she would go to the phone back, back there and relay these things. And what he demanded was, I want... $200,000 in American currency, which is a weird thing to say. He said American currency, which is, but he says American currency. And uh, four parachutes before 5 p.m. We this, And he says this plane will not land in Seattle until there's $200,000 and my parachutes down there. And so uh, it takes them, I mean, coming up with $200,000, again, this is $1.3 million today. Okay, so coming up with that much in cash, especially in, you know the day before Thanksgiving, end of a business day is not easy. Um, but thankfully, I guess for him, uh, the Seattle Bank, SeaTac, uh, or, or the um, Seattle First Bank it was called, they had a, uh, a FBI ransom pack that they had been storing for the FBI. The FBI had marked bills, basically. Um, 
in a ransom pack that was to be used in these sort of situations. And um, major cities would have these. So they had $250,000 in a ransom pack. And so they were able to get this money pretty quickly. Uh, the money got there a lot quicker uh, than the parachutes did. Finding parachutes short notice was kind of hard to do. He said he wanted two front chutes, which are reserve chutes, and two back chutes. Uh, so eventually the plane, as they're circling, the passengers are unaware of what's going on. They're, they are told that there's a mechanical problem, but they're fine because they can keep drinking all they want. Free champagne, right? Uh, now eventually the pilot tells the stewardesses to stop serving them because they're starting to get a little rowdy back there. And apparently in the first class area, he had a bunch of what, what the pilot called cowboys which were a bunch of dudes from, from uh, Montana who were kind of really getting shit-faced. And uh, a <laughs> pilot was worried that if they find out there's a hijacking, they're going to go yee-hawing. And they may have guns themselves, right? You know, nobody's checked for guns. So these cowboys, who knows what they've got on them. So the pilot says, uh, you know, cut off the booze, ladies. And so they do. And that makes them passengers even more agitated. So they're finally, finally they land in Seattle. And uh, the passengers, but Cooper says, hey, look, he's smart. But again, he says, I won't let the passengers off until the money's on board. Okay. Now, uh, so the stewardess goes out the front and brings his money on board, a big white sack. Now, all the passengers, this is when a couple of them who are less shit-faced and more observant notice this bag. And they're going, what the hell is this? And they have no idea, but they see a woman walk back with a bag and it, was, it has a bank stamp stenciled on it. Um, so there's a few of them are kind of curious. In fact, one of the passengers was an assistant U.S. attorney for Seattle. So it would have been his case if, if it had been prosecuted there. Um, he was actually on the plane and he gets off. And as he's walking off, he sees FBI agents that he knows from work and goes, hey, what the hell's going on? And uh, they say, hey, man, there was a hijacker on board. What's important to remember about this is that why it's critical that nobody knew about it. It wasn't just to keep you from being attacked as a hijacker. It's to keep people from looking at you, to being aware of you, right? If, if nobody knows you're a hijacker, you're just some other dude. Uh, so now, a few of them, now the college kids, it's important that the, one of the, the, the witnesses who were important other than the stewardesses, it was one that's pretty critical. I was a college student who sat across from Cooper. His name was Bill Mitchell. He was 20 years old. He was a University of Oregon uh, football player, I believe. And he had his books all out. He was studying. He was a, he, uh, Bill ended up working for Boeing as an engineer um, for his career. Um, but he was a smart guy, and he was studying. And uh, Cooper actually told her to move him. He said, hey, you're going to move that guy. Move that kid out of here. I don't want him near, near us. And she actually asked him to move, and he said, no. He said, I'm not going anywhere, ma'am. I'm comfortable here with my books. So she goes back and sits next to Cooper, and Cooper doesn't press the point. He goes, okay, I don't want to you know, alert anybody. Um, but the college kid only paid attention to D.B. Cooper because he was upset because this girl who was close to his age was paying him no attention. This cute girl, he was a cute guy. They were the same age. She's not even offering him drinks. She's not paying any attention to him. She is sitting next to what he called a, a geeky old man, his terms. It was a geeky old man. And with, with a turkey neck. He said, I could not understand why this geeky old man wearing uh, sunglasses, you know, who does he think he is wearing sunglasses in a plane? And, and why is she sitting next to him for all these hours? His, his first thought was he must have been somebody with the airline, like an executive who was observing flight procedures or something, right? 
So the passengers, the passengers get off the plane. The money's on board. Finally, the parachutes are brought on board. And uh, he says, okay. They say, what do you want us to do now, sir? He goes, well, I want you to refuel this plane. And then we're going to fly to Mexico. And uh, or he says, Mexico City. And they go, okay, well, uh, we can't fly all the way to Mexico City with this plane. Um, we, we, we have to refuel somewhere. And finally, he goes, uh, they throw out some names, Reno, LA. He goes, fine, Reno's fine, I don't care. Now, he, he says he doesn't care because he's not, he's not, that doesn't matter where it's going because he's going to jump out at some point. Now, again, some, what's smart about Cooper, there's a couple things to remember. Let's pause here. That he had a, he claimed he had a suitcase bomb. Now, why that's important is because that, that, the FBI was pretty pissed about this. They thought that was pretty genius. Because what that did, whether the bomb was real or not, probably not real. It didn't need to be real, right, for his purposes. I mean, he could have had whatever in there. So, but what that did is that kept the FBI from storming the plane and trying to engage him from, a, you know, because he could just blow, the, blow it up and kill everybody, kill the FBI agents. You know, maybe in a some he had, scenario, he might, could, if he had a gun, he could get a shot off, but a bomb kills everybody. And he had shown the, the stewardess. Like, hey, I can if I put this wire or whatever right here, it all oh, blows. Yeah. It blows up. Yeah, he showed her exactly how it could do it. And what's interesting, though, um, Tina, the second stewardess who sat with him, her father was a uh, electrician, um, so she actually understood wirings and things. And she gave a really good description of the bomb because he showed he showed her the bomb too, and she gave a really good description. And it turns out that that bomb could have, um, if it had, if it had been dynamite. Now again. This is 1971. Dynamite could be purchased by anybody at the time because people used them to blow up beaver dams and things. So if it was a real bomb, um, it would have worked. Uh, so some, uh, I believe some U.S. Marines uh, had uh, did a thing where they put up together a bomb for the government uh, with this to try to replicate it, and it blew up. So it would have blown up. It, it, it had enough amps to, to explode. So, And I have speculated that the bomb may have been real because – Let's say this is a guy with a. Let's say this is this is a guy with kids or whatever um, who's up against the who's in a jam. If you blow yourself up now, I don't think he would have blown himself up in the sky. There would have been no reason to do that. But if he blew himself up on the ground, if he had gotten everybody off the plane or whatever and was cornered by the FBI, you blow yourself up back then. There's no DNA. Um, you're going to remain unidentified, right? Whereas if he's shot in a shootout with FBI, that you know they're going to put his dead face on the on the cover of TV. And on the newspaper saying, does anybody know who this man is? So he probably didn't want his face on the cover of a magazine or whatever, right? His dead face. You know, so I, I think it could have been real, but I mean, probably not. But anyway, so um, the briefcase was a brilliant thing because that kept him from being stormed by the FBI. And also requesting four parachutes was brilliant too, because what that did um, was what that did is that allowed that basically made the FBI and the and law enforcement think he was going to make a stewardess jump with him. Um, and what that, the result, the result of that would be that they weren't, he knew they, he knew that the shoots were going to be good parachutes because they would not risk giving rags in, in there, you know, and have some girl plummet to her death. You know, now the FBI has since said that they would never do that because they don't have the authority to execute people which is what that would be if they had given them bad parachutes. And we can look at the subsequent copycat hijackers who were all given good parachutes. So um, now those subsequent copycatters were 
given good parachutes, but they were given parachutes that had trackers in them. Uh, they had wised up. And that's one reason why Cooper eventually gets away with it is because he caught them by surprise. Um, this was completely novel. It's a novel crime. Whoever thought of jumping from your crime scene, right? That's brilliant, really. It's a genius thing. I mean, you jump away from your crime scene before people even know you're gone. So, but at any rate, as we jump back to where we were, he says, uh, fuel up and take off, go to Mexico City. Pilots go, okay, we, we, we have to land in Reno first. He goes, fine. So they take off. Um, I guess for visualization purposes, I need to step back. He, the Boeing 727 had a unique design feature. It had stairs that came down the back. It had internal stairs that lowered from the ass end of the plane, essentially. And that's how passengers would board. Um, it negated the need for a terminal hookup or a, a, a truck that had stairs on it or pulling up to a terminal and having the thing come out. A lot easier to just park and lower stairs out the back and passengers could just come and go that way. So that was critical because that was the only aircraft. There was also a DC-9 was had that feature too, but there's only two aircraft where you could do that. And why that's important is because that would allow you to actually jump out of a jet. As we know, as we think about jets now, they have the front door of a jet. That's how you come off. Well, you can't jump out because you would going 300 miles an hour, you would just crash into the into the the wing of the plane, right? So the only way to safely egress from a, a jet would be to jump off these stairs. Now, Cooper had asked for the 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 the, the plane to be for the, for the stairs to be lowered before they took off from Seattle after he got his money. Pilot said, "Hey, we can't do that." Um, we can't fly like that. There's nothing we can do about that. So he goes, okay, well, that's fine. But he says, if that's the case, I have to keep this girl back here with me to lower it for me because he didn't know how to lower the stairs. It's important. That's an important feature is that he did not know how to lower these stairs. Um, so there were some people who speculated that Cooper may have been a 727 pilot because he knew a lot about the 727. But he didn't know how to operate the stairs, which is something that a 727 pilot would have known how to do, obviously. So he said, I have to keep the girl back here to show me how to lower the stairs. And so he did. So um, what's interesting, though, is that the pilots of the aircraft did not even know that the plane could fly with the stairs down. They had no idea whether this could be done. So they're freaking out, saying, we think this guy wants to lower the stairs when we're in the sky and maybe jump out. He can't do that, can he? And they're all panicked and stuff. And um, some voice chirps in. This is in, this is in the actual transcript. Some voice, chirp, chirp, some voice from Boeing all of a sudden goes, um, actually, we can fly with the stairs down. And they're like, really? And he goes, yeah, we tested this, and uh, we're doing this in Vietnam currently. They were doing it in Vietnam secretly, the CIA, because basically it's a commercial jet. So anybody who picks it up on radar, commercial jet. But what they were doing is chunking stuff out the back, chunking cargo to guerrilla fighters and uh, perhaps even chunking you know, Delta Force guys out the back. Uh, you know, out the back of the aircraft. So Cooper knew that this could be done. Otherwise, think about this. If he did not know that those stairs could come down in flight, he is in a, he is sitting in, in an aluminum jail cell, right? He's stuck. So it, this, he had to know this somehow that this could be done. Where he got this information from, we don't know. Um, very few people had this. This was a classified uh, secret that this could be done. So at any rate, the, the pilots are amazed. They go, okay, well, I guess we can do it. So they take off. And uh, the girl is only, Tina's only back there about five minutes. And uh, she's panicked. Uh, she kept her cool the whole time, but she's panicked because 
you know, she's like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to get sucked out the airplane when we lower this door. Right. Cause you know, she has visions of rapid depressurization. But one thing Cooper said was he told the pilots don't fly above 10,000 feet, which when you fly above 10,000 feet, the oxygen kicks in and that's what pressurizes the plane. So if you're below 10,000 feet, you, you can open a door. Think about skydivers who open doors and jump out, right? They're not being sucked out um, because they're not high enough. So he, he finally is like, look, just, just piss off. He tells her, to, she says, nice knowing you. You're crying. You're upset. You're not going to get sucked out. I don't want to explain that. You know, I don't want to explain anything to you anymore. Just show me how to lower the door. So she goes, you do it this way. And the last thing she says to him is, sir, please take the bomb with you. And he goes, I, I will. Yeah. So she goes up to the front. And uh, about 10 minutes later, as they're taking off toward Portland, remember, it's only 30 minutes to Portland, um, they get sensors from the front that say, hey, it's being lowered. The stairs are being lowered. So pilots are going, the pilots report, okay, hey, the stairs are lowered. We think he's going to jump at some point soon. Maybe, but maybe not. Remember, the guy said, let's go to Reno because I want to go to Mexico City. So they're not, they're not sure if the parachute thing is a ruse or, or what. They don't know yet. So uh, about at some point, what's really unfortunate is that um, when Cooper actually jumped, we know now because when he jumped, what happened was, so the stairs are lowered like this. And if he's standing here and if he jumps off, it's like a diving board. It goes like that. So it hits up. And when that happened, it caused a, a pressure bump in the airplane. The, the pilots and the, and, the, and the stewardess, they felt it in their ears. They felt like a, like a uh, Tina later described it as like a car door being shut. Just so now again, they did not know what that was because they had never, you know, but they reported it. They said, hey, um, this pressure bump, hey, we just felt this thing. Unfortunately, back then, the black boxes that recorded audio and recorded instrument things it, it, it re-recorded every 30 minutes. So, um, when, and when that happened, they were in between, they were in the middle of being handed off to, from Portland, or from Seattle Air Traffic Control to Portland Air Traffic Control. So the exact, so the exact time of when they said, hey, we just felt something here. It, it's lost to history. We don't know. Um, and that's really important because, you know, when you're, you know, Every minute, if you're going, you know, at the speed they were going, they were going about three miles a minute. So whether you jump at 812 or 815, you know, that's the difference in 10 miles of where this guy may have jumped out. So we don't know when he jumped. All we know is that it happened, uh, um, according to the pilots, they said we felt it outside Vancouver. Okay. Um, so doesn't help much. So they land in Reno. And they are going to assume he's still back there, actually. Um, so they peek their head out the door and say, sir, what are your further instructions? Sir, are you there? And uh, I'll backtrack real quick. Cooper was kind of nice to these people. Uh, he ordered them meals. He was concerned about he was concerned about the crew working a long day. He ordered them. He asked, he asked for steak dinners for the crew to be brought aboard, which is why they were waiting for the to take off and refueling. So actual steak dinners were, per his request, were brought on board. Now, of course, the crew were too nervous to eat anything, obviously, but he was still being considerate. So what's interesting, uh, the reason I bring that up is because as the pilots were exiting, the, were beginning to leave the aircraft when they landed in Reno and they realized he wasn't there. Now, first things first is they got on their hands and knees looking for the bomb because they thought maybe the briefcase was still on board. So they were nervous. But once they realized the bomb wasn't on board, they began to walk off. Now, 
remember the stairs would have been left down when he jumped. You know, nobody had raised these stairs. So when they landed, the stairs were bouncing along that runway, you know, just causing sparks. And so the stairs were down. But as the crew is leaving the aircraft, um, three FBI dog sniffing German shepherds come on board. Those are the first things that come up the stairs are German shepherds. Now, they're bomb sniffing dogs. They're supposed to be looking for the bomb to see if it's still on board. But what do they do first is they go right to the stakes yeah. and eat the stakes. So that was the first thing they did was eat the stakes. Um, the pilot, he tells the story. He's like, I froze because these dogs are coming toward me, but they walked right past me, you know, to, and, and, and knocked the lids off this food and ate the steak. So the, 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 the drug dogs didn't really, that wasn't the, the first thing they did was eat their steaks. But anyway, so he's gone. And uh, so all, but all they can say is, look, we don't know where he jumped, but he jumped somewhere between Seattle and Reno. Um, they eventually presumed that the pressure bump was when Cooper jumped, but they didn't know that. So they actually had to devise a test a couple of days later uh, with the actual, with the same airplane. They had Air Force guys create like a dummy, a dummy 250 pound sled that they pushed off the stairs over the ocean, of course, but it replicated the same, you know, thing. So they said, okay, well, that's clearly when he jumped. But the problem is um, they were looking in the wrong spot. We know now through various things that they, that they looked in the wrong spot. So they searched for months and months. They got the Army out there, the National Guard, you know, hundreds of you know, choppers and all kinds of stuff looking for this guy for 300 days. I mean, for, uh, for 300 Army guys, uh, National Guard troops, FBI agents galore. But they were looking in the wrong spot. They were looking probably as much as 10 miles away from where he actually came out. So – if they were expecting to find anything, they weren't going to find anything. What they did find, though, were two bodies that, that were in the woods. Um, actually, they, they found the body of an 18-year-old girl uh, named Barbara Derry, who was a victim of a serial killer, actually. It turns out now, they think, they're not sure, um, but there was a, uh, a serial killer up who was uh, working in that area at the time, ended up killing about six like young runaway-type girls. And uh, they found the body of this girl um, who was you know, a victim. So they, so they did find bodies, just not the body they were looking for. Cause, um, at the time they assumed that this guy must have died because it was kind of bad weather. Well, it wasn't as bad as people think it was, but it was bad weather. It was nighttime. There was clouds beneath him. So he would not have known where he was jumping. So, you know, they assumed that he died, but then they had the rude awakening because everybody and their brother started trying to do this same heist and they were surviving all the way to the ground. Again, my buddy Mac had never put on a parachute in his life. At gunpoint, he made one of the pilots show him how to put a parachute on. And he jumped out. And the, Now, again, he didn't even slow the plane down. He was a young guy. He didn't even think about it. Cooper slowed the plane down to a somewhat reasonable speed to jump out. McNally's plane, the pilots were going as fast as they could. They said, this guy didn't know what the hell he's doing. Let's try to kill him. So they went as fast as they could. So McNally jumped out going 350 miles an hour, um, which is just blazing speed. He, was, he went tumbling around, and he actually lost his $500,000. Um, he didn't secure his money to himself good enough, and it, it blew off of him. And he was like, no. Um, and the way Mac tells it, he says, you know, I was floating down there. I just lost my money. I said, I just lost $500,000 from 10,000 feet. I will never find this money. No way at nighttime, right? I'm going to know where I am. Mac jumped out. Somewhere. He said, I was in North America. I don't know where I was. I just jumped out, right? And, um, but as he's floating down, he decides to commit suicide. He's just like so dejected. He starts unhooking his, his parachute. 
He's like, it'll be a quick death. Then he decides, you know what? This is the way Mac talks. He goes, where there's life, there's hope, is what I started thinking. So I said, you know what? I can just do the same thing next week and get the money back. So he, 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 he was like, say, put his parachute back on. I said, I'm going to land and I'm going to do the same heist. So he, he literally, when he went back home, he actually, uh, going back to Mac, the first person who found him was the local sheriff. Came across him walking down the road after he had buried the parachute. Uh, he was, he, uh, Mac was looking for a car to hop, uh, for a car to hotwire to drive home. And the local sheriff pulls up and says, hey, young man, uh, who are you? He goes, oh, I'm whatever. And uh, the sheriff starts interrogating him. He says, where, where have you been? And Mac says, oh, I've been uh, at Joe Johnson's house. We got in a fight. That's why my face is banged up. His face had actually been banged up from hitting the ground from the parachute. But he said, oh, we got in a fight, and I'm, I'm, walking, I'm walking home. And he goes, uh, and now the sheriff thought this may have been a made-up story. So the sheriff goes, oh, yeah, Joe Johnson, I know him. He's got three kids. And Mac goes, Mac immediately thinks, oh, this is, this is a trick. Mac goes, oh, no, 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 Joe's got one daughter. And the sheriff goes, maybe he's telling the truth. He goes, well, look, uh, we're looking for a skyjacker. Uh, who jumped out over this area recently. Uh, you know, it's a bad time to be hitchhiking. Do you want to ride into town? So the actual sheriff gives the skyjacker that everyone's looking for um, a ride back into town. And uh, Mac ended up staying at a hotel for three days with about 100 FBI agents who were all looking for him um, because he couldn't get a ride out of town for about three days. Uh, so, but again, he wore a good disguise. And so they weren't looking for... They were looking for another guy, not, not for this young guy. But anyway, so when Cooper uh, jumped out, they assumed he died. But when certain, but, but when, and I say this lovingly for Mac, but when a doofus like Mac can survive jumping out of a jet, you know, all of the copycats, only two of them had ever jumped before. They all jumped out and they all survived. Um, and there have been Cooper researchers. There's a Cooper researcher I'm friends with who studied, uh, basically he studied uh, World War II pilots who bailed out. And basically, all the records indicate that you had a 98% survival rate as long as you jumped out of an aircraft wearing a parachute. Now, again, none of the guys in World War II had ever parachuted before. That was an emergency. I mean, they, they were told how to wear it and, and, and you pull it and it opens, right? That, you know, no, nobody, nobody, no crew who ever jumped out over Germany had ever skydived before or ever even jumped out of a plane. That's what, you know, that was a waste of time to, to teach them how to do that. And they had a 98% survival rate. And they're jumping out of death-spiraling aircraft, not out of a slow-moving, you know, jet and you know, off of a diving board, essentially. So, he, he Cooper survived for sure. Um, now, the FBI, of course, had, have always maintained that he died, because what else are they going to say? Well, shit, he got away, and they can't say that. And also, it's a kind of a warning. Oh, you know, don't do drugs, kids. You know, if you jump out of an aircraft, you'll splat down in the middle of the woods, and we'll never find you. Right? So that's kind of if if you watch you know, TV shows and things like that uh, that have come out ever since then, it was still an active investigation until 2016. So the only information that was released was what the FBI wanted to be released, right? So they would have, you know, their token agents go on Unsolved Mysteries or whatever and say, oh, well, we think he augured into the ground. They say he augured into the ground, like screwing himself in the ground, um, that we think he was a doofus. We think he had never put on a parachute before. We think this wasn't well thought out. But when they closed this case in 2016, what that did is that, that, that opened themselves up to be FOIA'd, uh, the Freedom of Information Act. You can file that on cases that are closed with the FBI. So a federal judge, um, the FBI was sued 
for all of their D.B. Cooper documents in 2016. And a federal judge, there's about 75,000 of these documents. So that's another thing, too. When they say that we think he died, they put 45 years and 75,000 documents into finding, this, into finding this jerk. They didn't think he died. They, they understood that he lived. They wanted to catch him. Yeah, because he's, he's alive. He's not dead. Right. So uh, this federal judge said, okay, government, you guys have to release 500 documents every month uh, until we're done. And so ever since 2017, January 2017, it's like a little, a little Easter egg for people like me, dorks like me, every month on the FBI's website, here's 500 new documents about the Cooper case. And reading their actual documents, it's funny because you'll, you'll read a document from an FBI agent who you saw on Unsolved Mysteries saying, oh, there's no way this guy lived. Well, his actual words, internal memos to J. Edgar Hoover are like, uh, that, we're pretty sure he lived at this point. You know, we can't find a body. All these other doofuses are jumping out and they're living. He, he's, he's, he's alive. We need to find this guy. So th- what they're saying, and also they, they like to say it was a storm of the century too. They say Cooper jumped in, the, in a, uh, you'll see freeze, a freezing rainstorm. Um, uh, one FBI agent said he may have frozen to death before he hit the ground. That's not even medically possible. Okay. But they would say things like that. Whereas we know from the actual documents now, for example, these FBI documents we have indicate they have, we have the actual National Weather Service data from 8.10 p.m. in that county where he jumped. That's 44 degrees, right? And light rain showers. That's Portland weather. You know, that's typical, you know, 44 degrees. He's not going to freeze to death in the air or on the ground, right? I mean, I mean, so wherever he jumped, he made his way out. Uh, and it's important to remember that no evidence has ever been found. Where he jumped is now a county of a million people, basically, outside Portland. It's it's, the Portland, it's basically the Portland suburb in Washington is where he jumped out. So that land has been developed. If there was a body with a parachute and money on and money strapped to it, a skeleton would have been found when they were breaking ground on the new Pizza Hut, right? I mean, they would have found it was, something would have been found, you know, uh, at some point. So, yeah. It's quick, quick aside here because I want to hear about your research, what you've got going on, and, and what you think you have discovered at this point, but. How'd you get into this? I mean, because you've become okay. one of the most four, I mean, the, one of the foremost experts on this case, on this D.B. Cooper thing, mm-hmm. certainly put, I mean, man hours that you probably don't want to think about to this point on this uh, on this situation away from work and family and whatever else. I guess my question is why? Okay. Uh, well, basically, I, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm, an, I'm a criminal defense attorney by trade. I was a prosecutor for a while. And I'm a criminal defense attorney. I specialize in expungements. So anybody listening, if you have some, <laughs> if your uncle had a drug charge when he was in at Old Miss, or your brother had a drug charge when he was at Old Miss 25 years ago, I can remove that from their record. As long as they've been a good little boy ever since then, uh, these things can be removed. So expungements are not really, um, it's not it's not the kind of work that takes up a lot of my time. Um, it's a good. I have a good business. I'm kind of, I'm kind of I'm kind of the guy for Mississippi expungements, I guess. So I've got a pretty good business going, pretty good business model that doesn't require a lot of my time. So I have a lot of free time. A lot of lawyers play golf. I don't play golf. I DB Cooper. So I, I don't know why, but um, I guess when I was younger, you know, like most people, in fact, the very first Unsolved Mysteries episode featured DB DB Cooper, and uh, featured uh, people who were like uh, counterfeiting Willie Mays memorabilia or something like that. It was really strange. It was it was in 1988. It was the very first Unsolved Mysteries episode was D.B. Cooper. Also, one of the very first In Search Of, if you guys remember that show In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, 
Y'all remember that show? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was always in syndication on the History Channel back when they showed history, right? When you were in the 90s or whatever. It's the Unsolved Mysteries. And So uh, when I was a little kid, I saw that stuff and I was intrigued about it. Um, but nothing was, I didn't really get involved in it until I was in law school. And uh, there was an FBI agent. The case, the case had kind of gone cold, but there was a young FBI agent who, at this point, the Cooper case had become what's called a hobby case. It was not really an active case, but if an FBI agent wanted, wanted, wanted to spend some off hours on it, then the, then the Bureau said, sure. So uh, this young guy named Larry Carr, an FBI agent, took over the case, and he said, you know what? He had come from bank robberies. That was his specialty. And he said that bank robberies are solved because informants. Somebody, somebody knows something. You know, somebody's brother knows something or whatever, right? So the way you find bank robbers is by getting the information out to the people and somebody will come forward. So he said, look, I want to do this with the Cooper case. I want to be transparent about the Cooper case. I want to go on TV and say, hey, look, this is what we have about the Cooper case. This, is, this was his necktie that he, that he left on the plane. This was all these things, all these critical things. And hopefully somebody will come forward. And I, I was in law school when that news, when that kind of came on the internet about this guy's agent saying, we want people to investigate. So I was like, okay. So I kind of got into it that way. And then over time, but it, it wasn't until the past couple of years that I really got into it. And I don't know why, I, I don't know how or why, but I just got into it. And, um, cause it's a fascinating story. And, and I guess what's intriguing about it is that it's a, it's a mystery that you think you can solve, right? Think about like Amelia Earhart or think about, um, MH370, right? Um, these aren't things that you can solve. Right. I mean, I, I, there's no way I'm going to be able to find where a jet is under the ocean or where Amelia Earhart's Lockheed is out in the Pacific. Right. But I can maybe figure out who D.B. Cooper was because, hey, look, maybe there were only a select number of individuals who fit the profile. The problem is. Because he was kind of a ghost. Not many people got good looks at him, even the stewardesses. You, you would think that the stewardesses especially Tina, who spent five hours with him, would have a good recollection. But when you read the FBI files, she tells them, guys, I didn't look at the guy. She I didn't scared. want to antagonize him. She was scared. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah she was terrified. So yeah. when you start investigating this, right, you're not the first person to go Hell down no. the D.B. Cooper rabbit hole. A lot of work has been done. They've, they've I guess identified hundreds of suspects and there are people that yeah um a lot of talk about uh rick rick straw rocks rock straw yeah rack straw i mean there was a lot of work put into that guy i mean yep. you know he sort of played along because he didn't want he didn't want it to end he he, he wanted yeah. people to think that hey maybe maybe i am and that should be the first clue when it comes to him not being db cooper um the real db cooper yeah, see, people will confess to being D.B. Cooper and people will play along with it because they're not D.B. Cooper, right? It's safe. It's a safe thing to brag about. Again, you're not bragging about being, this, being the Zodiac killer, right? You're bragging, about, you're bragging about pulling off the coolest heist of all time, right? I mean, here's a man wearing a suit. It's Don Draper, basically, from Mad Men, mm-hmm. you know, wearing sunglasses, having a, having a stewardess, having a hot stewardess light his cigarettes for him. And then jumping out with $200,000 cash and disappearing into the night. Never seen again. It's the coolest crime of all time. Yeah, because nobody right? got hurt. 
no, nobody was exactly. physically harmed, right? So you, no. a lot of people look at it and kind of you're like a, a modern day Jesse James, sort of without like Robin Hood sort of thing. Yeah, without hurting again, anybody. So you're you're cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, especially at the time, this was '71. This is all Vietnam's winding down, and Watergate is about to happen. And so, you know, one of the DB Cooper letters that was sent to a fake letter, obviously, was sent to uh, one of the papers that said, "I am DB Cooper, the system that beats the system." And so like this phrase, the system that beats the system became like a people would spray paint it on overpasses in Washington and Seattle. And, you know, kind of became he became kind of a counterculture hero um, right now. But because no one looked at him. Like, again, like you said, she was scared. And it, it's like what they advise you to do if you're being robbed. Right. You don't look at the person who's robbing you in the eyes. Right. That's just going to make him edgier. You know, look away if you're being robbed. Hand, hand him the money. and Look away. You know, so she didn't even look at the guy. The only, I mean, even though she was with him the whole time, the, the, the best image of Cooper comes from the, the, the girl who freaked out because she actually served him his drinks. She talked to him. You know, he looked at her and said, Miss, open the, open the, you know, open the letter. And that was before he put his sunglasses on. So she's the only person who actually made eye contact with him. Um, and, because she, and because to her, he was just another passenger to her. Uh, so he had no reason not to, you know, be afraid of him at that point. Now, it is interesting that they, you would say that they were afraid of him, but he put them at ease a little bit. Um, there are moments during the hijacking after the passengers get off while the stewardesses are still on board where they're back there shooting the shit with Cooper. In fact, Tina goes back there and says, hey, there's a lot of money in that bag. Can, can I have some? And he hands her, he hands her several stacks. He hands her $6,000. Um, and she, she kind of goes, oh, geez. She laughs and goes, oh, well, uh, sir, we cannot accept gratuities at this airline, you know, and she hands him the money back. But I mean, so they were all hanging out back there and they were um, asking him, oh, where are you going to take us? And, you know, are we going to Cuba? Um, and Tina actually told Cooper, she said that all the stewardesses kept uh, swimsuits, like all stewardesses at the time, regardless of the season, kept swimsuits in their uh, in their overnight bags in case they were hijacked to Cuba and got and got a chance to go on the beach. So she even tells him, Hey, are we going to Cuba? And he goes, no, no, sorry about that. We're not going to Cuba, but it'll be okay. So they, they weren't too afraid of him, but again, they were not going to look him in the eyes and antagonize him to a point. Um, and I think they understood that he wasn't going to harm them. Um, now some people have some people who do psychology have, intimated that what that means is that Cooper actually was an older individual in his fifties. Perhaps he was kind of fatherly to them. They weren't to be blunt about it. They were not sexually intimidated by him. They weren't afraid of being assaulted by him. You know, because this is a man who's got a lot of power and these are girls in go-go shorts and things like that, but they weren't again, if somebody has a bomb, if I think someone has a bomb, I am as far away from that bomb as possible. No one, Note the captain never told the stewardesses to go back there. This is after the passengers got off. Everybody told the stewardesses to go back there and shoot the shit with him. But they did, but they did anyway. They were back there just hanging out. So at a certain point, they must have understood that this wasn't going to be bad for them. And they were just hanging out. So, um, but yeah, um, I guess jumping around a little bit. Good. Yeah, I want to, I want to so get into how you began to look in a different area. Ah. Uh. D.B. Cooper than everybody else, because there were so many people that went down the same handful of, of 
of people and they would just they would get together and they would debate these people and all that stuff and it was obvious really even to someone like me who didn't start looking into this really until you emailed us the first time yeah that that it wasn't those guys it, it it's not that person that person's interesting and they might have a story but it really doesn't match you went in a completely different investigative yeah path they to were, find a completely different lead that led you to someone that all of these people over decades never talked about yep so all these suspects throughout history have always most of them have had have had what's called silver bullets what i mean by that is perhaps the guy is five foot six well cooper was five ten to six feet tall ish um so somebody who's five six can't be db cooper right or with rackstraw okay rackstraw certainly was capable of doing something like this. He was a bit of a bad dude and he was a bad individual. He killed his stepfather, got away with it. Um, he was not a good person by any means, but Robert Rackstraw was 27 years old at the time. So you're telling me that a 21 year old girl is going to sit next to a 27 year old man and say that he's in his fifties. No, absolutely not. And also think about the vernacular. Like, I mean, age goes beyond just looks like, if, if Neil, if you sit, I mean, you're 52 right now. 53. Yeah. 50 flirth. <laughs> yeah. 53. So, so if you're, if you're sitting next to a plane and you're talking to a, a, a guy who's 20 years old or 21 years old, the way you talk to him is not the same way that his contemporaries talk to him. Right. There's different, our dialogue is even different. Right. So if Robert, yeah, when, I talk to, was, when I talk to my daughters and their friends, it's a, we have different, we have different yeah, ways different, of communicating. They're in their different they're, rhythm. Yeah, they're twenty. They would have been roughly the age of of uh, of Tina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Campbell's Tina's age. If that, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that should make you realize how how much the pilots really admired her. And she's this girl. The girl is Campbell's age, and she's dealing with a dynamite bomb. All these passengers, keeping a guy cool. I mean, if you watch documentaries, uh, the surviving one of the surviving pilots, a guy named Bill Ratchick, he always cries. Every time he talks about Tina Mukla, he starts to cry because he says how brave she was um, through, through all that. Now, she broke down. She collapsed as soon as she got in the car in the airport in Reno. There's a photo of her leaving, and she's got a big thing on Kleenex. So she, was, she, she fell apart and sobbed once she got out of there, but she kept her cool the whole time. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but so yeah, age is you know. So they thought he was older, mid forties, fifties. So Rackstraw's of the, he's basically a contemporary of these girls. So it's not him. And they can say he put makeup on. Look, no, it just that's just. And again, he again he played along too much to be the real. Yeah, guy. I, I got frustrated with the Netflix documentary because it's they spent much. so much time on yep. Rackstraw, and I'm like, but it's not him. And you, everyone knows it's not him. And you could easily do this documentary in a different way. Yep. And tell people it's not him. So it's an enormous fr- it's an enormous frustration. In fact, there's a documentary called DB Cooper Case Closed from 2016, which is the which is a rack straw, another rack straw centric documentary, which is actually the one that caused the FBI to, to close the case because they were involved in the production of it and they said this is stupid. I mean, you know, this we're not gonna solve this. So, but that was a that was entirely about rack straw, and, and it, it, at the end of it, Tina Mucklow is showing a picture of rack straw and goes, no, it's not him. You know, I mean, so it's like they spend four hours in this documentary building up Rackstraw when they know what the end is. And it's the same thing that happened on the, on the Netflix documentary. All this time and energy on Rackstraw when it's, it's so obviously not him. It's very frustrating. And the other one that people go to is Richard McCoy. Now, Richard McCoy is a fascinating person. For those who don't know, you know Richard McCoy, you know, called the real McCoy. He was a uh, Vietnam, a decorated Vietnam Green Beret, a chopper pilot who uh, was studying criminal justice at BYU when Cooper happened. And he was like, hmm, that's interesting. He was a skydiver also. Um, He said, that's interesting. Uh, So he started writing a term paper on how to thwart skyjackings. Remember, he was a criminal justice major. How can can we stop skyjackings? And his conclusion upon writing it was, well, shit, they can't stop it. We can't. Well, I could do this. And he found out earlier that year in 72 that he thought he had a brain tumor that was going to kill him. He had two young kids. Uh, he was making you know, $500 a month. It was nothing. He had no job. Um, he was too old to be. Uh, he, he's just McCoy ends up doing a D.B. Cooper hijacking. And McCoy looks similar to Cooper. He had balding. He was 29 years old, but he was balding. And, and uh, he pulled it off perfectly. And the FBI was convinced. He said, oh, crap. This is D.B. Cooper. He's striking again. He lost the money because the money never turned up in circulation, right? It was all marked. So they were like, he must have come back to get more money because uh, McCoy asked for $500,000. And he sat in the same spot. He did exactly what Cooper did. I mean, to the, to the letter. But that's not because he was Cooper. It's because he literally studied Cooper for a term paper. So he just emulated the guy. But the problem with McCoy being Cooper is McCoy had a birth defect that messed his mouth up. He had a strong lisp. He was also from South Carolina, so he had a heavy Southern accent. Um, he could not have been Cooper, who was described as having no accent, very bland voice, um, no distinguishing features at all on Cooper. So they ended up catching McCoy, um, and he went to prison, and he escaped prison in '74 ended up being killed by the FBI in 74. So with them dying, people are like, well, we'll never know if it was Cooper or not. But again, if, you know, he wasn't Cooper, all the, you know, within days of his arrest, we, we, and again, we have all the FBI documents now. 
within days of McCoy's arrest, audio recordings of his voice were played for the stewardesses. Photos of him were shown to the stewardess and, and, and all the witnesses. All of them said, no way, that, that's not the guy. He's too young. And it just doesn't look like him. But anyway, so as far as what we did, I guess we can get into the tie, is that Cooper supposedly, there were no prints of value found on the aircraft for him. No, no fingerprints on his chair that, were, that really were of value. He asked for all the ransom notes to be brought back to him before he jumped. He left nothing on the plane. In fact, um, he had some matches that he was using for his cigarettes to be lit by Tina. Now, remember, the reason he didn't light his own cigarettes is because he kept his hand in the bomb the whole time as a, as a, as a, as a ploy, I guess. So his right hand was in, his, was in the, the window seat with the bomb inside the briefcase. So he could only use his left hand, which I speculated he was left-handed. Um, because if you're think about if you're going to do something like this for hours, you, you want your dominant hand to be the hand that can reach into the aisle and do things right. So I think he was left-handed and also his top, the, the, the tie clip on his tie went from the left side, which indicates a left-handed person put it on. So I think he was a left-handed person, which actually kind of narrows things down um, a little bit if you consider it, but that, but it's not, it's not dispositive whether he was or was not. But anyway, uh, when Tina lights the last match from his matchbook, she throws it in the trash. He goes, no, 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 no. Give that back to me. He takes a, a discarded matchbook with him. I mean, he wanted nothing on the plane, but he made one mistake. Uh, when he was putting his parachute on uh, in the back of the plane with the lights off, he, he took his tie off. It was a clip-on tie. And what, is, what do we do as men when we take a tie off? The first thing we do is throw it on whatever's closest. You know, it's just almost an instinct, a reflex. You just lay it on a bed or whatever you do. And you keep, you know. so I think he instinctively took his tie off and threw it on the seat, intending to pick it up before he left. But because the seats were dark, it was dark, and he was kind of, you know, concerned about other things like not dying in the next five minutes. Um, his, his, his mortality was on him. Uh, he just left it. Now, the tie was a secret for years. Um, the FBI kept the tie a secret because their whole thinking was if somebody comes forward with information on D.B. Cooper, we can ask them, what did you leave on the plane? Or what did he leave on the plane? And if they can't answer his necktie, well, then it's, it's a waste of time. So they kept that in reserve. Looking back, it was kind of a mistake because that tie is kind of, it's got a, it's got a, a kind of a, it's, it's got kind of a unique tie clip on it. And perhaps they could have published that and said, hey, the Skyjacker left this tie. Do you know anybody who fits the description who has a tie like this? And that would have helped, probably. Um, but they kept it in reserve. So it wasn't until the 90s when the tie was even talked about. And nobody even saw the tie until this agent I mentioned in 2008, Larry Carr, uh, decided to put it on TV. Here's the D.B. Cooper tie. He left it. So when that happened, though, some scientists were like, hey, uh, well, it was this agent, Larry Carr. He said, I want to get some scientists to, you know, run some analysis on this tie because maybe there's something on there that, that can lead us to something, right? Well, they ended up testing the tie. And um, what happened was is they, they put sticky stub things onto the tie. And when you put sticky stubs onto like fabric, you can peel it off. And whatever's on the fabric will now be on the sticky stub that can be analyzed by a, by a high-intensity electron microscope, okay? So they got five or six... Uh, sticky stubs, and about 40% of the tie was stickied. And they analyzed this. They sent it to a place called Macron and Associates in Chicago. Now, they have probably the best electron microscope in the world. 
Um, the, when the Shroud of Turin was analyzed, the Vatican sent it there. Okay, so that's pretty substantial. These guys, these guys are good at what they do, obviously. So the Cooper analysis was sent there, and it spit out 100,000 particles from this tie. This tie was filthy. I mean, like, absolutely disgusting filthy of all kinds of particles and all various chemicals and rare earth elements, all kinds of weird stuff are on this tie. Now, the FBI had this spreadsheet of 100,000 particles. An actual, there's an actual spreadsheet that has 100,000 spectrum analysis readings, which are, I mean, very, I mean, you have to be in that world to, you know, analyze spectrum analysis and things. Um, but there are people who can do that. So the FBI said, here, you know, you know here's 100,000 particles you can look at. Anybody on their free time can look around and see what's on this tie. Now, most people, it's too daunting to go through 100,000 particles of microscope elements. But uh, a researcher named Eric Euless uh, went through, and he found on this tie, well, the first thing that they found was that this tie was covered in titanium. It had about 200, it had about 2,000 pieces, pieces of titanium on it. Now, titanium at the time, it's more ubiquitous now, but back then it was only... Uh, for aircraft, you know, it was an aircraft you know, aerospace metal. It was expensive. It's, it's still expensive to make, but so it had a lot of titanium on it. It also had all kinds of other elements on it that hinted that this person was a metallurgist. Um, vanadium, canadium, all these really toxic chemicals actually are on this thing. Chemicals that you or I would never come into contact with, or would hope not, and they certainly wouldn't get on our clothing. Okay, so. People are going, well, who the hell was this guy that he had, they had this filthy, disgusting tie? So people, went, people said, okay, well, maybe we're looking at for a metallurgist of some sort. Well, this guy named Eric Euless started looking through this tie, and he came across three particles, now three out of 100,000, that were a combination of titanium and antimony. They were an alloy. Okay, alloys, for those who don't know, are metals that are, when metals or chemicals are combined to make a metal, to make it better, you know, it, it, basically, it's forging metals together to make stronger metals. Okay, so that he said, this is weird. There's only three of these on this tie. What the hell is a titanium antimony alloy at all? Well, he started looking into it, and he basically discovered that there's no such thing as a titanium antimony alloy. What is this? He dug deeper and found out that basically, only one place in history ever essentially. There's one other place, two places. Basically, um, only one place really tried to blend these things together. And it was a place called Crucible. It's a steel company in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And, he's a, and what's interesting about that is that this is the same company who made titanium alloys for 727s. The same company was highly involved with Boeing. They had a very incestuous relationship. This was Boeing's go-to company for all their metals. So all of the construction of their aircraft you know through Seattle went went through Seattle out of Pittsburgh so there's a weird there's a connection there between this alloy on this tie and aircraft specifically this company who made 727s so it's really strange so you know he started looking into that and then what happened was a buddy of mine on the Cooper group on this Facebook group uh, a great researcher he, uh, um, he's a retired a military man has a lot of free time. He's a, he went to uh, the Wharton School of Business. Really smart guy. 
has a lot of free time. Make, uh, uh, he made his money in the military, uh, doing uh, financial investing, and then was in the military and all sorts of stuff. Retired, reti a retired genius. He started looking through patents, and he discovered. That, so this tie back up. The tie was manufactured in 1964. So any chemicals on this tie would have to be from post 1964. Okay. So. He discovered there were only two patents ever in, in the world that mentioned a titanium antimony alloy. And it was this small company up in New Hampshire uh, that was making electronic transistors. But then there was also crucible steel on the 727 people. In 1965, they had a patent. Now he goes, that's interesting. So what we started to do, and, and it turns out, by the way, it went back up, that this patent, that, 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 Titanium alloys, titanium antimony alloys were never used commercially ever, ever. They were only lab creations. They were experiments. So it was, it was an experimental alloy. So nobody was ever going to encounter a titanium antimony alloy. In it the literally lab. never left the, the lab. The lab, right. Never. So to come across this in the wild is basically impossible. Um, essentially, I mean, really. Um, so, we just, so we started going, hmm. Let's look and see. Let's try to find a list of all the people who would have worked in the research lab or worked at this company at the time. So we built a spreadsheet of about 150 names of people who we found out through old, we contacted Crucible and found out their old work logs to find out who these people were. Um, and we found a hundred, there's about 150, 150 names of men. And we looked through their obituaries. We looked through their draft cards. One neat resource that we all have is there's a website called Fold3, which is a military archives website and back back when we were see we 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 all came of age post draft all of us still had to register for selective service but back during the actual draft they actually made you come in and measure they would look at your body they'd measure you they look at your eyes they'd make sure you had no scars so all of these draft cards millions of draft cards for american men have their exact height barefoot height have their weight, have their eye color, have air color, scars, marks, and they're all in this archive. So we can go through and weed out, if you have 150 names, weed out, go name by name, look up their draft cards, because again, we're looking at men who are mostly dead by now. These are guys who worked in a lab in the, in the 1960s. They were already older at the time. So, you know, anybody who's five foot six, eh, got to get rid of him. They have blue eyes, not him. Blonde hair, probably not him. And then we started looking at their military. We looked up obituaries to see if any of them were in the in Air Force or, you know, pilots or whatever, um, or where they were from. And what's interesting is the only person, there was only one name that came up, who who fit, who both fit the profile as far as age. We were looking for forty to sixty. Now, sixty seems old, but again, people age differently, and. Uh, you know, people, when you're wearing sunglasses, big sunglasses hide your eyes. Your eyes are your age. A lot of your age is in your eyes. And especially if you're, you know, kind of nonchalant, who knows how old you are if you're on an airplane. A lot of people struggle with people, I mean, even myself, I have a hard time distinguishing somebody who's 45 and 55 sometimes. That, that, that's a weird age for men, I think. Yeah, it can matter like how much hair you have, fitness level, uh, whether you're whether you're away, uh, tired at that particular moment. I mean, it can be a lot of different things. There's yeah, a well, there's a lot of variance. Well, and Cooper's hair was very black. One thing about Cooper's hair is that people were all the witnesses were universally upset by his hair. They didn't like his hair. No one liked Cooper's hair. There was something about his hair that that, that they didn't like. 
And it was, they said it was too black. It was jet black. So he had dyed his hair. Now, that doesn't mean he was blonde, but that means he had, you know, there was no Grecian formula back then. Um, there was no just for men back then. So people, men, men literally used shoe polish in their hair back then. So his hair was disgusting. It's called greasy, patent leather sheen. Uh, one person said his hair looked like a gangster movie from the 30s. It was just greasy and gross and black, jet black. So, you know, hair, black hair can make you look a lot, a lot younger if you have no gray hairs. So we were looking for people in 40 to 60, 5 foot 10, 6 feet tall. Only one guy was 5 foot 10-ish to 6 feet tall who was of the age and who was from that area. And that happened to be the actual patent holder of this, of this alloy. Like, well, damn, that's really on the nose, isn't it? That the only guy who's from that area, you know, who, and, and it's funny is that he, he was, this guy, he has more titanium alloy patents than anybody ever in history. It was, it's a, it was a hard thing to make. And now again, no, none of his inventions were ever put out into the wild, but, but he still patented them. Okay. Um, so, so Milton, Milton Verdahl would have absolutely worked with this particular alloy. It's, it's his baby. Absolutely. It's his chemical. Um, and in fact, we know from talking, we have talked to people who worked, there are people who are still alive in their 90s who worked in those labs back then. And basically, if your name, if you were the only inventor on a product in one of these labs, that means it was just you, you know, hunkering over something, making a, a, a brew, essentially. So a lot of these patents have five or six names on them, and that's everybody who worked on it. it they just got a credit. It's, it's like getting a songwriting credit, right, on a patent. So the only 1965 the only patent there's only two patents in the tie in the tie era we call it and it's uh Vordals, and it's this weird transistor radio thing that doesn't really make has no connection to aviation so we go okay milton Vordal. we tried to google him there's no no photos came up we have no idea no idea what the guy looked like all we had was you know his size we had his age he's 58 at the time we go that's really old that's, that's kind of older than we would like cooper to be but it's still Again, the very first, the, the, the stewardess who sat next to Cooper, who looked in his eyes, the one who looked in his eyes, okay, who fled to the cockpit, she wrote down handwritten notes in the cockpit immediately because the, the, pilots were trying, the pilots were trying to keep her busy. They said, write down what's going on, what you saw. So literally five minutes after she goes running to the cockpit, she writes down uh, six feet tall, black hair, in his 50s. So our very first impression of D.B. Cooper is in his 50s. So, I mean, that, that's, you know, and, and I, I think people like to be conservative on someone's age. I don't think people like to make people older than they are. So, I mean, it's possible that he was older than, than that. So anyway, so we had this guy's name. We had all this stuff. But again, what kind of person is this, this guy? Is this guy, is this the guy who's going to commit an aircraft piracy? You know, now again, we had no idea what he looked like. This was just us throwing feelers out there. And remember, I mentioned silver bullets, these things that can kill a suspect. Blue eyes, five six. You know, we couldn't find a silver bullet on this guy. We kept looking, and the one thing that we came across first on this guy was that he wrote a lot of op eds. He was very prolific. He was a prolific writer of op eds on newspapers.com. If you put in Milton Vordial, you will see this guy ranting and raving about everything. Um, and it's uncomfortable, really, if you read some of them. Um, it's almost. Um, he's so smart. And again, I back up a little bit. Milton Vordial worked on the Manhattan Project. He didn't serve in World War II as a soldier because he was exempt because they put him on the Manhattan Project. And he actually, um, 
the Fat Man bomb is what was dropped on Nagasaki. That was built at the Hanford site in Washington State. That's where Vordal was. He actually, there was some uh, fuel cell problem thing had happened during the construction of the Fat Man bomb that was going to kill it completely. And um, they were worried, we got to shut this whole thing down. But Vordal came up with the, uh, the formula or whatever to fix it. So when he died in 2002, he, he had one obituary ever. And it was in some metal working magazine. And the only thing it w mentioned, clearly it was written by him before his death, was his Manhattan Project thing. He was proud. He was very proud of that. And he actually received like a commendation from Congress or something under the table. You know, thank you for, he was a genius, a, a true genius. This man had almost 100 inventions. If you, if you go on patentguru.com, look up Milton Verdile. He has inventions for beer, uh, for brewer, beer brewing, refrigeration, explosives. Uh, he has patents for explosives. He worked for Remington Company for a while. Um, but his op-eds are kind of strange. It, they're almost, it's almost, my first impression was it's very Unabomber-y. Um, if you read the Unabomber Manifesto, it's, it's weird. It's like, it makes sense. It's, the grammar is correct, but it doesn't read correct. You know what I'm saying? Like it's got a, mm -hmm. something unique about it. And remember, they published it on purpose, the Unabomber, because they said somebody's going to recognize this speech pattern. And it was his brother, if I recall. That's uh, correct. Spotted it. Yeah. So Vordal had this weird language, this weird style that he wrote in, but it's kind of dark. He has op-eds where he... Uh, extols the uh, the values of paganism. So he was an open pagan in the 1960s. Who who did that? Uh, he spoke in favor of apartheid, uh, of eugenics. He was a believer in eugenics. So a bit of a dark individual in a lot of ways. Um, had some issues. Uh, we found out that when he was 31, uh, he had a seven-year. He was married and had a seven-year-old daughter, and he. Uh, ran off with a 20-year-old babysitter and never spoke to his daughter again. Um, that is sociopathic behavior, folks, um, to abandon a, your own child uh, and never speak to them again. To run off with a 20-year-old babysitter when you're 31. Now, he ended, up, he ended up having you know, four kids with the babysitter. He stuck with her, and that was his wife, who, who he was with for 60 years. But uh, still, that's, kind of, that's bad behavior, essentially. Now... The re, uh, so we start, so we started looking at more, and we're like, that guy's kind of weird. Because if this guy had been like, you know, Ward Cleaver, he's not hijacking a plane, but this guy's kind of creepy. There's a there's a creepy element to this person. Something's weird. Something strange about this guy. Um, we also found out that he was an avid golfer. Um, we actually, and he was he was a great golfer, actually, a very very good golfer. He actually, he actually made his own golf clubs with titanium. Um, he uh, did. He made um. He was so cheap, by the way. This guy was so cheap. He made his he made contact lenses for his children in the '60s. Those are some brave kids to put contact lenses that your dad made in your eyeballs. So he made contact lenses for his children in the '60s, back when they were hard lenses. Um, he made these. So made contact lenses. Uh, he he made braces for he made braces for his children. So this is a a a, very, a, a guy with a a, a lot of uh, a variety of skills to do things um but also was cheap and had some kind of a dark streak to him w what happened though is important to remember that in 1971 uh boeing had a contract with the u.s government to make what's called the sst which was a um basically it was the concord for america um, 
uh, as we know, the Cold War was a giant penis measuring contest, essentially, right? So if the Soviets have something, we got to have that, right? So the Soviets had a had a uh, had a uh, commercial supersonic jet. It was crappy and crashed a lot, but they had one. The French and the English had the Concorde. Well, by God, America needs to have a supersonic jet, right? So Boeing landed a government contract to make the supersonic transport jet. And Boeing was making 40 or 50 of these at the time. And these were, because, it, because they would go supersonic, they would get so hot, they had to be made out of titanium. The whole aircraft were titanium aircraft. And now remember, Vordial has, has in fact, Vordial has more titanium patents in the 60s than anybody else that we came across. In fact, he has the patent, the SR-71 Blackbird, uh, the, the coding on the plane was one of his patents. But let's remember, all of his patents were signed. He got no royalties ever from any of these things. So he has patents in the 727. He has patents in DC-9s. He has patents in aerospace. He had patents. The SR-71 Blackbird was his patent. He got no royalty. He didn't get a dime off of it. It's like the guy who worked for Nike who, who, who made the swoosh, right? No royalties at all. Okay, so Fordyle's not a wealthy man by any, by any means. Uh, at this point, he had moved over by 71. He was working for a company called Timet, uh, Titanium Metalworking Company of America in uh, Nevada. Um, and now, let me back up. I don't think I mentioned. Originally, he's from Washington State. Fordyle is from Washington. Uh, went to Washington State University. He was living there at the time of the hijacking in Washington. He had, he had, um, but, he, um, but he also owned a place in Vegas. Now, some people speculate he was with the mob. Uh, this, remember, 1971 is still casino, Joe Pesci-type mob. The mob still ran Vegas in, in 71. So he, he, had, he had a house in Vegas and a house in Pateras, Washington, where he lived. But um, what happened, though, is once we had landed on the moon, all these other things, the government pulled the plug on the SST in March of 71. And about, and this is not an exaggeration, about 10,000 Boeing engineers were laid off. 10,000 were laid off. In fact, Seattle just became a bus city in a way. Um, if, let's tie that in. Uh, Seattle's called the Supersonics, the, um, the, um, the, the NBA team. I guess, are, um, do they still exist, the Supersonics? They're now the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's right. I knew I was like, wait a second, that's a defunct team, isn't it? Yeah. I'm not the, the, the Washington. I'm talking about the Washington Senators here. Yes, the Supersonics. That that's why it's because of that stuff, Boeing and that sort of stuff. But there was actually a billboard in Seattle that was put up. It said, "Will the last one out of Seattle turn off the lights?" Because everybody was leaving because they had lost their jobs. Well, here's Vordial, Mister Mister Titanium himself, right? His dream now is this this whole fleet of beautiful titanium aircraft. And plug is pulled. And his, and his factory where, where he was working was shut down. His entire, his factory was shut down. He lost his job, 58 years old, middle-aged. Who's going to hire me now? Because titanium has gone bust. This is all I know how to do is make titanium. Um, turns out, we found out, I found out by looking through newspaper articles that the head of the research lab, that he was his boss who fired him was a guy named Don Cooper. Now, let's remember that D.B. Cooper is a misnomer. The actual hijacker's name is Dan Cooper. That was his, his, his alias was Dan Cooper. Turns out that there was a, uh, a, a, a notary public in Vancouver, Washington, whose name was D.B. Cooper. And for some reason, uh, uh, some radio person was 
listening in on the uh, on the hijacking on the feed of the hijacking as it was occurring, and um, they, they were discussing Dan Cooper, the cops, or whatever. And some cop goes, "Oh, well, there, well, well there's a DB Cooper somewhere. Uh, we know about that guy, right?" Uh, and just flippant remark that some reporter, as you know, the first one to report it, oftentimes that becomes the story. So he says, "DB Cooper." He, in his haste to get the story right, to break the story of the hijacking, is a guy named DB Cooper hijacked the plane. It's actually Dan Cooper. So anyway, Vordal's boss who fired him a few uh, three months before the hijacking was named Don Cooper. Make that what make of that what you will. Um, that's a little that's a hop and a skip away from Dan Cooper. Might mean nothing, you know. But so now again, let's let's remember, we had no idea what this guy looked like yet. None. Found no pictures of him. So what we did is we contacted, we found out, we looked on Ancestry to find out who of his family were still alive, okay? Because um, he was born in 1913, so he's, a, you know, he's gonna have grandkids who are older. Um, it turns out he had a grandson. He has a grandson, he has a grandson who was born in July of 71, who was a real estate agent up in Seattle, a pretty well-known real estate agent. Uh, we, contacted, we contacted him about it. Now again, let's remember this. If somebody contacted me about my grandfather, and said my grandfather was a was a pirate, was an air pirate who skydived with with, with two hundred thousand dollars. I go, you're a full of shit. I'm sure most of you would think the same thing. Like that's ridiculous. Well, none of the family, they're all they're all just like, tell us more. We're like, oh geez, you know, like, oh god, you know. Now that was literally their reaction was, okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, well, what? But let's and, I, and again, we're expecting the sl slamming the door essentially, like you know, yeah. piss off. You know, my grandfather. You're, you're, my you're grandfather like grandpa? No, he's a big Seahawks fan. He doesn't do anything. Come on. Yeah, he's yeah he's yeah. he was you know he was so yeah, sweet. He, he was a sweet guy. I like to bowl on Tuesday night with his buddies. Yeah. Yeah. What's funny when we first told him about DB Cooper, his first reaction that was what the f? He goes what the beep? And then he goes, and then there's silence, and we're like, and then he goes. Well, Grandpa was kind of an interesting guy. He goes, uh, <laughs> "What more can you tell us?" We're like, "Oh shit!" So we asked for photos. We said, "What do you have of photos of your grandfather?" Right? Can you send us something? He goes, "Well, um, let me look around." You know, now he wasn't a guy who was photographed very often because a lot of people weren't back then. So he he ended up finding uh, Vordal's passport from 1969, um, and. I, I'm not ashamed to admit when I saw the picture of his passport, I had tears in my eyes. I said, oh, my God. Because, again, this guy, I mean, he could have looked like Chris Farley for all we knew. You, you know what I'm saying? We had not seen a picture of him. We knew he had the right height or whatever, but that doesn't mean he didn't have big bug eyes or little skinny eyes or a big, huge honking nose, you know? So he kind of matched, saw his, right? Uh, it matched a lot like that, you know, as you can wow. see. I mean, I mean, it's... The, the nose is right. The head shape's right. The hair is right. The ears are right. The chin's right. That's it. That is Milton Vordal's passport picture with the uh, D.B. Cooper sketch. The and longer so you look uh, at it, the more it looks like him, frankly. The more you look at it, you go, I'll be down. Yeah. Well, again, a sketch is not a photo, right? Yeah, sure. A sketch yeah, is yeah, going yeah. to get as close as it can be. And uh, what's funny is uh, that sketch artist is still alive. He worked, for, uh, he worked for a long time on that sketch. Uh, we have the FBI files about them making the sketch. It took him a long time. That's why if you Google, like on the Wikipedia page for facial composite sketch, the photo is that that photo right there of D.B. Cooper because that's the most famous sketch probably ever. 
because the FBI put a lot of effort into it. Um, so we saw this. We go, oh, God almighty, that looks just like him, doesn't it? So that took our breath away. And we go, oh, shit. So um, we started digging into it more. And, you know, the family were just like, yeah, um, you know, dad was, our granddad was kind of, his own grandson says, he was kind of a pagan. Uh, he like worshiped the stars and the sun and stuff. And when he died, he wanted to be like thrown in the, he, when he died, he wanted to be thrown in the woods and have, and, and, and have his body rot in the woods. We were like, well, we can't do that. So we cremated him, but, but they wanted to throw him in the woods. That was, that was his request. You know, he was an interesting fellow, this guy. Um, you know, he's got all these, like I said, there are, there are op-eds where he's talking about, he was, he was very pro-choice. Oh yeah. He would, he would write op-eds during the Roe v. Wade era using his wife's name. Now, again, he would sign these things, Elizabeth Wardall. Now, again, maybe, maybe his wife just happened, maybe his 1950s housewife just happened to write just like him, but that's unlikely. Look, they read just like let, him. No, hold up. If you're going to let Ward Cleaver, <laughs> if you're going to let Ward Cleaver uh, uh, be a skyjacker, it is possible that June Cleaver would write op-eds. So just back off. Just keep Possibly. going with the story. Believe Wally and, and, and everybody in the Beaver and Eddie Haskell out of this. Just Although, would June Cleaver say that your aborted babies are no different than eggs washed down the drain? Probably no. not. No, probably not. June, June probably would have a little bit more of a compassionate approach to that topic. Yep. And, and that's what Bordal's op-ed said. Your, your, your babies are no, long, are no better than eggs. Uh, a human life is not formed until they're about five years old and have emotions. Oh. I mean, just creepy stuff, you know. So, so yeah, so we, we, uh, basically, and where we are now is that we, we announced this guy at CooperCon. Um, you know, a lot of people were really interested in Bordal. The problem with him is several, he's got several problems, but none of them are what's called silver bullets. Problem is he, there's, we have no idea if we, we don't know if he'd ever skydived before. Um, we know he was a very active man. Like I said, um, we, we, we found an our news article of him. Uh, placing second in a golf tournament when he was 77 years old. And this is not, this is not a senior golf tournament. This was a golf tournament. He was still playing in, in his late 70s. Um, he was a but, very but a man who A man who could figure out how to make his own kids' braces and contact contacts would be able to figure out how to put on a, 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 pair, a parachute and pull a cord. Yeah. And, trust that it would, and trust that it would work. You know, he would understand yeah. the physics of it. Right. That, hey, this is probably going to work. Um, now, he did die. I'll say this too. Uh, Verdile died of a of a neurological disease um, when he was older. It turns out that it, it, it's kind of sad. A lot of the people. Remember, I said we looked at. Uh, remember, I said that we looked at obituaries of a lot of these guys from this from these labs. Um, a lot of them died of Alzheimer's and uh, brain disorders. Um, I think surely from the chemical. This is before OSHA, so they were inhaling a lot of toxic chemicals, making these you know metals and things you know in, in these forges. A very nasty business, but uh, he died of a neurological disease, and and it's a really rare neurological disease too. And I, I looked it up, and uh, what it mainly affects is impulsivity. Um, so it's not it is not believed that the Cooper hijacking was very well planned in advance. Um, it's we don't think he thought about it very long because two, uh, less than two weeks earlier, a Canadian. Uh, Tried to named Paul Cini tried to hijack a plane uh, in Canada, and he carried a parachute with him onto the plane and said, "I want money." 
and I want to, and I want to give it to me, and I'm going to jump out. Now he um, got distracted for a second, and a, and a uh, co-pilot hit him in the head with an axe, fractured his skull. So he was never to, he was never able to make good on his his hijacking. And also, he hijacked a DC-8, which would have made him have to jump out the side door. So he, he would have been killed anyway. He died. So, but it was a very highly publicized story at the time. So it, it's, it's very unlikely that two men independently of each other were thinking up this completely novel heist, right? They had this, you know, where I'm going to board a plane, ask for money, then jump out. So we think that Vordal or Cooper, whoever he was, said, I'll be damned, I could do that. And guess what? Bill over beers told me that they did an air test on 727s. They can fly with the stairs down. Because that's all it would take, right? Is Boeing, remember Boeing was involved with the testing. So they knew it could be done. So all it takes is, you know, a, a, you're golfing with somebody who says, oh, man, you know, guess what? We jump out over Vietnam too, you know? So it just somebody spilled the beans. So Cooper, Cooper only, he had less than two weeks to plan this thing out or maybe even less time. But yeah, if you're a genius Manhattan Project guy, you can figure out a parachute. And, you can, and also, again, he was an athlete. Um, most of the news articles you find about him are him winning tennis tournaments, him winning golf tournaments. So was he, was he employed at the time? No. of the? So he didn't no, have he anywhere had, to be on Monday morning? Oh, hell no. No, remember, his factory had been shut down. So I have... Okay, have you talked to the family? Have you gotten far enough to to know? Did he show up for Thanksgiving dinner? No. Was, was um, it odd that he wasn't there? I mean, problem is there's only one surviving son of this guy, and he is kind of battling early Alzheimer's, and so he only has one son. And remember, grandkids aren't going to know these things, right? I mean, you wouldn't know where your grandfather was in 1961, for example. Of course right? not. Right. Right. So, and if your if your father had Alzheimer's, then you're not even going to bring it up to him. In fact, we've asked, and he said, you know, I don't want to tell my dad about this because I want my dad to remember his dad as he was and not complicate things. Although what's interesting, though, is that one of the other sons, this guy had four kids for a while, uh, the nephew or his grandson did tell us that his uncle, one of Verdal's other sons, uh, had a bunch of D.B. Cooper books. Um, so I, b before he died, he's like, yeah, my uncle was in interested in that stuff. I don't know why, but he was. So I don't, I don't know. But. Um, so, no, we don't know. The problem is, yeah, memory, it's a long time ago. And this is a time before the internet. I mean, you think about like, I think about my, my stepfather was a very reckless individual. Okay. When I was growing up, he, he my, my stepfather grew up in the Amazon. He was, uh, um, he was, he was a missionary kid. He grew up very reckless, uh, you know, you know, doing Amazon things in America. He would, we had a private, uh, we had a, a Piper plane that we owned. He would fly through the clouds before he was IFR rated. He did a lot of risky things with me as a child. He would swim under like in the Pearl River. He would go swimming. He would swim under boats that, that were going over with propellers. Very odd behavior. How, but would anybody know that 50 years from now that my stepfather behaved that way? No, that's not going to be in the newspapers or anything, right? So that tells us a lot when the family is like, well, okay, you know. Because you know they 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 would know his personality, you know. And again, when Vordal died, his grandson was 32 years old, so he the grandson knew him as a man, you know, and not just as you know. My grandfather died when I was eight or whatever. It's, it's different. So he knew him as a man, and he knew him well, and wasn't isn't like piss off. He's intrigued. Now, 
we are slow playing the family very slowly. I'll say this: this, this is all. This all happened in about. This, all this stuff happened in August, September, October of last year. Um, and we're slow playing. That we're moving very slowly with the family because problem is, if you think you have DB Cooper, the only way this is ever evidence is ever being found uh, a Cooper twenty tucked in a tucked in a book somewhere. Uh, the ransom notes kept as a souvenir shoved in a book in a closet, right? Something. It's going to be through the family's help. And so if you lose the family for good, that's it. It will never be solved, especially if he's the guy. So we're moving extremely slowly with the family, just trying to protect them and not, you know, I, 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 like I have not gone to the news to report this, and I won't. And I've told them that. I, I will never go on Netflix with a Vordal documentary until it's until we have proof of it, right? Because I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I mean, he, you know, Vordao is not on the Wikipedia page, for example, because I don't want, you know, you know, I mean, he, he may, he may not be Cooper. The thing about it is, is I don't know if he's Cooper or not. He matches a lot of things, but it could just as easily be somebody within Vordao's universe. Somebody who's really Do you worry about, you're doing a, I mean, we're not exactly uh, the NBC News here. Um, maybe every bit as reliable as these days. But but regardless, if something like this were to become, for lack of a better word, viral and got picked up with you talking about this, or do you worry about losing your scoop to a, another media? Because well, you, 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 you even did it at CooperCon. I mean, that told all these people who obsess over this what you're doing, right? Yeah. It's a weird, okay, so the weird thing about Cooper is it's a very proprietary industry, I guess. So, like, if you have a suspect and you become, and that's your suspect, <laughs> that's your suspect. And we don't step on toes. It's just, kind of like I mean. college baseball recruiting. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. like, I mean, Robert Rackstraw is this guy named uh, Tom Colbert who's in all the documentaries. That's yeah. his guy. I mean, different suspects have. You know, different guy. Ted Braden, who's a great suspect, has a guy named Drew Beeson wrote about him. I mean, it's all these, um, all these suspects have their guys. So I guess I'm the guy for Vordal, which in a, in a weird way, I would prefer there. I would prefer not to be the Vordal guy because I love the case as a whole more than I love solving it in a weird way. Um, solving it, in a, I mean, it's almost like what you know. The question is always, you know, what do we do once we solve it definitively? Well, I mean, what do we do now? The answer is always we find out how the money ended up on a sandbar um, because we haven't talked about that. We'll talk about that real quick. In 1980, about $5,800 uh, of Cooper's money was pulled out of a sandbar by a kid who was digging a fire pit on a sandbar. A, 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 he and his dad were going to have a fish fry. And he was just digging through there and found this money and pulled it out of the, and pulled it out of the sandbar on the Columbia River. Now, that's about 20 miles away from where Cooper jumped. And now water, uh, money, we have done numerous uh, uh, tests on this. Bundles of money do not float. They get waterlogged and they sink. So they don't go tumbling down the river. You know, they're not gonna, it's not going to enter the river. And So somehow that money ended up there possibly by, man, by, a, by, by a human agency, I guess. I know why. Who the hell knows? This is a random sandbar. Um, we some speculate that maybe Cooper was bored and uh, you know wanted to watch the world burn. Right. So he went and, and again, it's money that he knew he couldn't spend. 
Because see, Cooper asked for circulated U.S. He asked for circulated currency, which means I don't want it to be marked. Mm-hmm. Now the FBI they held they held back the fact that it was marked for about two weeks, hoping he would go to a bank and spend it. They get they sent all the all the all the all the uh, all the serial numbers out to local banks across America. Instead, if anybody comes in bringing a bunch of twenty dollar bills, you know, check it. So they kept that from public media for about two weeks, hoping he would spend it, uh, and he didn't. Uh, and then they put it in the, in, in, in the local papers saying, hey, you know, t- you know check your 20s, you know, do you, you know. And so if Cooper was cautious, he would never have spent it. But then again, he could have taken it to Vietnam or, you know, you know, Argentina. And how would that money ever be found, right? I mean, again, somebody has to check a serial number mm-hmm. on a dollar, on a $20 bill and then match it up with a long list of serial numbers. It's 10,000 serial numbers. A lot to go through, right? Um, so maybe it was spent, we don't know, but the money was never spent. We don't, we don't think, um, but this money turned up on the sandbar, $5,800 of it. And, uh, what's fascinating about it is the same people who analyzed the, the, the tie analyzed the dollar bills to see what was on the dollar bills. And it turns out that the dollar bills, um, had, had these, um, Basically, I forget I forget the name of it. I should know what the names of it, but these little microbes um, that are that are seasonal. Okay, so in the Columbia River, and these microbes were only springtime, summertime microbes on the dollar on the on the money, which means that the money did not get into the river on the night on the night of the hijacking. So, because some people speculate Cooper fell into the river, the Columbia River, where he jumped near there, is about a mile wide. So it's like the, it's like the Mississippi. So I mean, you, you could land in it. And you're a dead man, right? You're, you're, you're done for. And that, they say that's why no money's, nothing has ever been found at Cooper. Is he, landed in, he landed in the drink and drowned. Even if his parachute deployed, you're landing in the water, you're going to drown probably if you don't know what to do with a parachute. And you have this big thing strapped to you of money. And so, but yeah, that's what, um, so this money is found and we have no idea how this money uh, got there. So the joke is, you know, if we ever solve D.B. Cooper, we're going to start trying to solve the money because how the hell did money not get wet in November, then end up on a sandbar found nine years later with some rubber bands still attached to it. Now the rubber bands broke apart immediately. Rubber bands only survive in the wild a few months until they completely disintegrate. So, so again, nerds like me have done experiments with putting, with burying things with rubber bands on them to see how long they last. They don't last that long. They're disintegrated. In fact, one super nerd up in the Pacific Northwest actually found out who supplied that bank with rubber bands? So he so he got the actual rubber bands that were used for the money, and 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 used those in his experiments. And they, and they don't last long. So it seems like someone may have planted that money there, you know, uh, not long before it was found. So why would someone do that? Just to just to be just to be cute? I don't know. Just so to, what's it, next? That it, to get the to get the story back going again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're you're hey, t- talk about me. Now, what's interesting though is that I'll point this out too, is that there still exists a, a John Doe indictment for D.B. Cooper. So aircraft piracy at the time had a five-year statute of limitations. And uh, they realized this not long before it expired. We have the FBI files where they go, oh shit, we, we need to do something because he, he I mean, if, if the statute of limitations goes by, he could emerge and go, ha, 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 ha. I beat you guys, right? And they can do nothing about it. So they went and got a John Doe indictment on D.B. Cooper. Um, and they, 
So there is an open indictment still, even though the investigation's closed. Um, the FBI says they will talk to you if you if you find a body. They say body parachute money. You find the parachute, you find a body, or you find the money, then we'll talk to you. Otherwise, we will not accept any calls about DB Cooper. Because that's the thing. There are folks, there are 75,000 documents. And I've gone through, about 40,000 have been released. I've gone through every single one of them. Trust me, I have. I'm currently writing a book also on these documents. I'm compiling the ones that matter. Of these 35 or 40,000 that have come out, about 33,000 are just bullshit. Because J. Edgar Hoover created a agency that documented everything. The FBI, he made them, it's called 302s. It's a form 302. Every call they ever got, everything FBI agents, they took a piss, was documented. I'm not even exaggerating. Like, I mean, like, they cataloged, like, the cost of donuts during the search. Like, oh, we paid $5 for a donut here. I mean, it's insane. Most of these documents, are, all these documents are in there. So anyway, uh, almost 95% of these documents are stupid. Oh, I think my neighbor looks like the sketch or whatever. Uh, my favorite one is, uh, and this is true. Now, I, should, I, might post on, I might post on the message board later. My favorite, my favorite one I came across was, I was watching Perry Mason last night. I don't know what the episode was, but one, but, the, but, but, but one of the members of the jury looked like the D.B. Cooper sketch. I think it's D.B. Cooper. You should find that episode and, and, and find out who that extra was. What's funny is that this is literally typed out by an FBI agent going, oh my God. And then at the bottom, he writes, like, basically, you know, no need to investigate, underline, you know. Like, this is stupid <laughs> as hell, right? So uh, then we have a guy, there's a guy who uh, showed up to the FBI office saying that he had a uh, divining rod that could locate where Cooper's remains were. And apparently this divining rod was two sticks uh, submerged in a, in, in a bottle of Alka-Seltzer tablets that were fizzing. I mean, just like madness is most of what these documents are. And a problem was, too, is if we think about the D.B. Cooper sketch, the one that we all know and love, the sunglasses guy, not the one that I showed a while ago, but the famous Cooper sketch, that's the one that they made originally. He could be 35 years old. He could be 30 years old. He'd be 25 years old with that sketch. They completely botched the very first sketch. So the FBI, to this day even, you know, people see that sketch and they think that's what Cooper looked like. But as soon as they saw that sketch, the stewardesses were like, oh my God, that's not him. No, 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 you got to redo it. The problem was that's the first, when the news media was all the story, that's the sketch they ran with. And that's the sketch they have in their archives. So every Cooper, every Cooper story, every year on the anniversary, they run the same sketch on the news. So that is the D.B. Cooper sketch of the one with the kind of the skinny face with the glasses. And so that gave them a, a nightmare of having leads of 25. Oh, my son got back from Vietnam. He's all messed up. I think he did this. Whereas in reality, he was in his 40s or 50s. So, but you asked what's next, Chase. Um, basically, so, so the house that Vordal lived in at the time uh, is still owned by the family. It's owned by the grandson we deal with. It's kind of a summer lake house sort of place. It's a beautiful location. Um, and the family still use it. And apparently all of his books and all of his, a lot of his science experiments, uh, telescopes that he built, he built himself telescopes, of course, they're still out there. Um, a lot of his alloys that he invented, fragments, uh, the grandson, we were like, oh my God, when he told us, he said, oh yeah, in the garage, there's all these like pieces of metal that have like patent tags on them. So we're going, oh shit. So if we could have access to one of those, to those, we could scrape off. And, and make and see if it's the exact chemical formula of the one that's on the tie, right? Um, so that's all still there. But again, we're slow playing the family. 
Um, eventually, we're hoping that we could get up there um, on the land. Uh, we have access. We have people who will give us access to a, uh, um, I, I forget what it's called, but kind of a Doppler, um, a, a thing that can look through walls, cubby holes. Now, this guy was kind of a strange guy to begin with, an inventor. He built his own house, too. So who knows what kind of cubby holes he may have had hidden for things, right? So that nobody knows about. So uh, we're hoping to have an invite eventually from the family to come up there and um, look around um, and look around the ground. Maybe, maybe, it would, maybe he buried the money. Maybe he buried, I don't, I don't think he did. I think he probably, you know, the thing about where he lived, he lived in the biggest county in Washington by size, but also the county that has the smallest population. So he, he lived in the middle of nowhere. So nobody knew this guy. I mean, he could have blended in. I mean, it would have been nothing for him to go to Portland and do this. And what's interesting, too, is at the time, his grand, his, he had family in Seattle. His, he had two sons living in Seattle. So our running theory is that his wife was in on it because we feel that if, if Vordal was Cooper, then remember, remember he had this wife who he, he abandoned his family for this young woman when she's 20. He's a genius inventor. Their power dynamic was probably lopsided in that relationship, especially given the era. So she probably, and in fact, the grandson told us, she said when he died, she was distraught. She worshiped this man like, like a god. So whatever he wanted to do, she probably would have done it. So our thought is that maybe they disguised this whole thing with a, we're going to go see the family. Because remember, I told you the grandson was born in July of 71. He was living in Seattle at the time, this grandson. So maybe we're going to go visit baby Eric, you know, uh, for Thanksgiving, and you go past Portland from where they're from in Washington, maybe it was part of their ruse. And hey, look, if we're stopped by a roadblock at, that night, we're just a, a couple. I'm, I'm, I'm 58 years old. We're going to see our grandkid in Seattle. We're not pirates. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we, we think that what our take real quick, I'll say real quick, our take is that he is that basically they would have stayed in Portland the night before <clears throat> in like a hotel, and that he told her, because this is what I would do, if you try to imagine yourself saying, look, honey, I'm going to jump out near Portland somewhere. I don't know where I'm going to land. I don't know when I'm going to jump out, but stay by the phone. I'll eventually make my way to a phone. I'll hitchhike. I'll, just, I'll do something. I'll make my way to a phone. I'll say, hey, this is where I am. Come get me. I'll stash the money somewhere. You know. I'll, and again, he's wearing a suit. One thing about a suit is that you land and you're not too dirty. You can walk down the road and say, oh, hey, hitch, hitchhike. You know, hey, my car yeah. broke down a mile away from here. Can I get a ride into town? And that's one part of wearing a suit is that you blend in really well. You're an everyman. Um, and there are, remember, there are some nuggets in these FBI files. There are, there are two instances in the FBI files that, that, that were never uncovered before that, that we came across in one of these you know, data leaks every month where um, a young girl was driving home from work and uh, around where we think he jumped, actually. Now, the, the, the modern estimate. She said, I saw a man wearing a suit walking down the road. And in all these years, I've never seen a man walking down the road. And this is about 9 o'clock. I mean, Cooper jumped about 8.15. So like, I saw a guy walking on the road in a, in a black suit. And she you know, called the cops. So that's a reported sighting of a man, random man walking down the road in a suit with no tie, by the way. Um, so there's, there's that. You know? And then there, it turns out that there was a break-in at a, at a small grocery store that we found in the FBI files. There was a break-in that night at a small grocery store and all the person took was beef jerky, gloves, and cigarettes. Didn't steal anything, didn't take liquor, didn't take hmm. booze. Um, and, it, now, and they called the cops that night 
no no break-ins other than kids usually breaking in to, to steal booze. And so, and that's right near where, I, where we think the drop zone was. So that indicates that Cooper may have lived too. Um, so yeah. it's a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, I don't know if Vordial's Cooper. I mean, it's possible, but I'm, I'm not married to it. I mean, somebody, I mean, if, if, you know, if, uh, if they, if the family finds a photo of Vordial from Thanksgiving holding baby, holding the baby and his leg is in a cast, I'm gonna go, oh, okay, maybe it is him, right? Because, you know, maybe he busted his leg on the way down, right? Um, what's interesting is that Vordial did, did have a big scar on his leg, apparently, from later oh. years. And he would tell people that uh, a dog caused it. We, we, there's an op-ed of him where he's describing uh, a, a big scar on his leg that a dog gave him. Now, remember, this guy plays golf a lot, probably wore shorts a lot. God, God almighty, Milton, how'd you get that scar? Oh, a dog bit me. It was actually yeah, yeah. a pine tree scraping his leg as he came down, right? I don't know. Um, so it's intriguing. I don't know if we'll ever find out, you know, but um, it's a, been a fun, fun journey, you know, and I, I hope y'all have maybe some questions. You can ask me real quick before we go. You make a heck of a compelling case. I mean, as you're talking, I kind of go, well, it makes more sense than anything else I've heard at this point. I mean, that's, that's kind of that's, that's where I would I'm at right I, now. I would guess that you found him. Yeah, I would too. I, I, Log I mean, logic logic tells me that you, you probably found him. I, and and if you made you're me handling it well because it would drive me insane that I do think something's in that house and you've got to slow play and be so careful of getting. Yeah, if, if you made positions. me bet, I would bet the money and the ransom notes are in that house because he seems yeah. too prideful to discard them. That's yep. part of it, and when also too remember the era too. This is, I mean, yeah, the money's marked, but you never know when that new, when that Soviet missile is going to hit, right? And everything goes to hell. And who cares if your money's marked, right? You know, money spends. So, I mean, you're living in the Cold War era, right? I'm talking about back then. So why, why, why would Cooper actually destroy the money? Um, well, he would be able to buy things without going to a bank. That too. Yeah, and nobody's checking $20 bills for... I mean, and, I mean, I mean, who had the list anyway? The, that that list is kind of hard to come by. It's yeah, on my website. When you, buy, when you go buy mustard and bologna, you're not checking the twenty dollar right. bill at the, at the grocery. No, store. and I mean, look, my website norjack.org. That's n o r j a k. That's the FBI code word for Northwest hijacking, essentially. Norjack, norjack.org. Um, I have all the serial numbers printed there. So if anybody has a 1969 twenty dollar bill, <laughs> you can check the serial numbers. I mean, seriously, pe people do. Because they're yeah. like, well, you never know. Um, you know, the problem was too the shelf life of a twenty dollar bill in nineteen in nineteen seventy one was about six years before they're pulled from circulation. And back then, when they destroyed money, now every bill that's destroyed starting in nineteen ninety, uh, they scan it before it's destroyed. They mark the serial numbers. Back then, they didn't. So all the money could have been long gone, and we would never know. But yeah, I mean, it's possible it's in that house. I don't know if it's the guy. I mean, again. Was he crazy enough to risk his life on a thing like this? Maybe. I mean, maybe he was just midlife crisis. Do you want it to be him? Yeah, of course. I mean, and not so much because I have vanity, but just I think it'd be cool to know who he was finally. I mean, there are a lot of people who have spent way longer than I have. And if I'm 60 years old still doing this, kill me. But like that Colbert are, guy, he, he, well, this thing has taken a bite out of him. 
it's the he is suffering from the uh, sunken cost fallacy, right? He has yeah. spent too much yeah. time and effort and money in it. But the thing about Colbert, though, I actually know the guy. I mean, the thing about Colbert is that he's the reason why we have these documents because yeah. Rack Straw is is was the nail in the coffin for the Cooper case. The FBI said, "Oh, we're, we're tired of dealing with this shit." So, and Colbert's lawyer, a guy named Mark Zaid. Uh, who's Mark Zaid? I don't know if you know, that name may be familiar with you guys. You guys do Kennedy stuff. He's who got all these Kennedy FOIAs released. So he's really involved. He's the he's like the world's best FOIA lawyer. Uh, he's highly responsible for a lot of Kennedy docs being uh, released on the JFK assassination. So, um, but yeah, so Colbert had the deep pockets to pay Zaid to file a lawsuit and sue the FBI. So really it's a collaborative effort i mean everybody gets a treat i mean it's not me finding vordal if it Vordal's the guy it all begins with larry carr the agent who went, went on tv got me interested the agent he's the agent who said hey let's get the tie scanned right so i mean if it wasn't for him if it wasn't for colbert who got the foyers you know i wouldn't have got these documents and so it's all it's it's it's, it's, it's a team effort but um i hope he's i mean it'd be cool if he's the guy and we call him the unicorn because one thing about him is that he's not a badass military guy. He's not a skydiver. I'm, I'm talking about, when I, when, I, when I explain to you, they pulled every single skydiving card in this country. Every, all of them. 30,000 cards. Every single person. They went through the cards of, of skydivers who were registered skydivers at the time looking for people. Um, they looked at all the Special Forces guys, Green Berets, all these, anybody. And what's funny is that they would show these pictures of these skydiving guys to the witnesses, to Bill Mitchell, the college kid. And Bill Mitchell told me over breakfast at CooperCon, he said, man, they would show me these pictures of these skydiving dudes. And I'm going, that's not him. He wasn't a badass. He was a dork. Like this guy was not intimidating at all. He was a nerd, a geek. He wasn't some skydiver, some point break that guy, right? I mean, this is not that. So a mild-mannered, middle-of-nowhere scientist is not going to gain FBI scrutiny. They're not going to look at him. Nobody's going to think it was him. So really, it's kind of a perfect crime, you know, in a lot of ways. What? What's the reaction at CooperCon when the pictures go up? I mean, is it gasp? Is it applause? Oh, yeah. Like, what, what, what is it like in this room? It was a gasp. Um, uh, uh, there was an audible gasp. Absolutely. Because um, people, in the video, I say, look, I, I, I even warned them. I'm like, folks, this is a little, this is a little shocking. Just be prepared. <laughs> and I had a clicker. And I clicked over to that picture, that post that I showed. And it was, <gasps> and then some laughter. A few people started clapping. Like, holy shit. Because no one looks that close. Okay. And again, this guy could have looked like Chris Farley. Mm-hmm. Sure. But the fact that it's almost too much, it's the tie particle, right? Then it's he lived in the area. Then it's he was pissed off about work. Then it was the picture looks like him. Then he was a the an asshole. The, Come use, on. The, use the boss's name. Come on. Come on. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, I'll be shocked if it's not him. Yeah. And so that's why we call him the unicorn. Because everybody else who was a skyjacker at the time, they fit a pattern. They were political radicals. They were... Vietnam vets who were messed up. They were like my, my, like my friend Mark McNally. He was, he was a crook. He was a bank robber who was like, I could do that. That's cool. It was a method of bank robbery for him. Cooper was different, right? Cooper was yeah. chilled out. Cooper maintained his cool. He didn't 
all the other skyjackers, they showed up. Set, you, know, you know, the passengers were very aware they were being skyjacked. It was like almost like this is a robbery. This is a skyjacking. Cooper's back there, chilled out, almost a little embarrassed. He's offering tips to the girls, almost embarrassed. He's putting them. He's putting. He's doing this to them in a way. Um. So he. So in the FBI, all of their documents say, look, this was probably this guy's first crime. They think it was his first crime. The way he behaved was not normal for a person who was a experienced criminal. And again, so completely whoever, unassuming to the stewardesses. Nothing. I mean, just yeah, nothing. On. Would not nothing have been except, intimidating in the slightest. Nothing except a fat lip. He had a fat lip, and Milton Bordile has a fat lip that is drawn exactly like the sketches draw it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the only. They said, all, they said the sketch artist said, what did, what did it look like? They said, middle aged man with a protruding lower lip. That's all they could offer. Yeah. Well, when you get more on this next time, we, we'd love to have you back and get the uh, get the epilogue because there's the, the the I'm with Chase. I would maybe this is just the reporter in me, the, the being patient with the family thing. No, yeah. Well, I know. I, 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 I guess you'd be begging. afraid of being scooped. I mean, you'd be afraid of being scooped on. I, mean, yeah, I, I, I guess it's. I, I don't yeah. know. I would be so invested that my curiosity would get the best of me. Um, when yeah, I was it, when I was covering courts and stuff. As a young pup in Birmingham, we were there was an FBI case that there was a escaped prisoner that the FBI was searching for, and my shift was four a.m. to two p.m. And that afternoon, that evening, I kept calling, and I ended up calling an ex-wife of the guy. And next thing you know, the, F, the FBI is knocking on my door. I got, I got scolded at work for don't work away from work, and I was like, I don't know how to not do that. <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to solve it. You're trying to fix that's it. Just, it kind of that's just me. So yeah, I would be I would be in Washington right now if I were. Well, you. I guess the problem is, and I'll leave you with this: is that the is that we're just again, if you lose the family, it's forever gone, and so it's you you almost have to have the discipline. Yeah, to, I would to slow play it. I would guess that the grandson, being human, knows wants wants to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah and he has been sending us things. Yeah, from time to he, time. So. He wants to know. I mean, it's kind of a cool story. Hey, my dad, my grandfather was DB Cooper. Um, oh, look, it's it'd be huge, especially look. His his last name is Verdal. Okay, there's only there's literally one family with that last name in America. It's them. Um, they're from Norway. Uh, 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 Verdal's parents came from Norway. He spoke Norwegian originally. Um, but no, uh, and so that and so in, up in Seattle, look, there are DB Cooper themed restaurants in yeah, Seattle. Seen, yeah, it, it's a big deal. Okay, so for him as a real estate agent, there's no oh, bad press. Right? <laughs> no, there's no bad press. And again, it's not yeah. a. It was, it was a crime, yes, but nobody was. It's harmed. victimless, if you will. Yeah, yeah it, 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 well, the, it, it was victimless. He's, he's bound to want to know. Yeah. Look, T Tina Mucklow said that about being a victim. She said, "People bothering me since then has been more trouble than the actual thing. The yeah. actual thing ne never bothered me really. After the day, I was like, okay, well, whatever." Has, yeah. she I mean, seen she was, has she seen Bertal's picture? Probably. I mean, the problem is, is that they would not recognize D.B. Cooper. They just wouldn't. I mean, they've said so. I mean, look, we, we have FBI files from 1972, 73, where they're like, my memory of him is really foggy. And I would have to be in, in his presence to know if it's him or not. Yeah. So I don't know. Tina's in her mid to late 70s now. Uh, or, yeah, yeah. She, yeah, she's 74 or so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and so they don't remember. And, and you know, I wouldn't expect them to. Um, I mean, would you, I mean, could you describe your third grade teacher's face? Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, Mrs. Anderson, I'd have to really you think might. about it. Maybe a little bit. Well, let's just say this: not even Miss Anderson. How about your? How about a, a substitute teacher? Yeah, right. In that's third grade. The, yeah, right. Yeah, that's no more chance. apt. No chance. No way. No way. And so, I, I don't think so. I mean, now Bill Mitchell, the college kid who sat across from Cooper, he was there. He was at CooperCon. He was like smiling, like okay, okay. He was very interested. Remember, I told you Bill Mitchell worked for Boeing. So Bill Mitchell came up to us afterwards. He was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, this is kind of what I like. He said, this is what I remember. <laughs> this guy was a nerd. Like this, this is not, he wasn't a badass. He was a, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, like, and this is, he said, do you have more pictures? And problem is yeah. Bill Mitchell saw him from a side profile. So Bill can't, all Bill knows is, yeah, he looks like a sketch, but, but anyway, so we'll, I, I'll let y'all know. I'll post things online and uh, I'll, I'll post my Perry Mason uh, thing on, on the, on the, on the website. On, on yeah, absolutely. It's, it's great stuff. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks guys. And, uh, hopefully, uh, when, whenever I find the twin R bill, I'll, I'll give you all one. Oh, perfect. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a bunch like of them. That. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, guys. Take care. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the planet premier league podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.